Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome. It's a beautiful fall morning. We appreciate you joining, joining us this morning. Uh, today we're going to discuss a, uh, a rapidly developed area of interest of the panel, and I think um, writ large of the bio world, is biodefense and cybersecurity. Uh, we're going to talk a lot about cyber biodefense. Uh, in the digital forevermore, it's something the panel believes we should pay very close attention to. Before that, I do have a couple of things I'd like to share with you. About five years ago, when we pulled this panel together, we really wanted to take a hard and some would say very critical but comprehensive look at our country's ability to defend against uh, biological threats. And as you know, uh, we built a national blueprint for biodefense. And to the credit of this uh, organization, we concluded uh, that not only was our biodefense situation not good, we actually concluded it was grim. Uh, there was a lot of work that needed to be done. So in the process of the five years working with my colleagues and a very able staff, we began to educate uh, Congress, the administration, about our findings and our recommendations. And that the final blueprint actually had several dozen recommendations. And my last count, we were in 26 or 27 of the recommendations we made over the past five or six years is either in legislation, pending legislation, become part of national policy here. And all members of the panel were not interested in just being part of a study to study. Uh, we all agreed that if we're gonna co-chair this effort, uh, we need to make sure that there were specific recommendations and then follow up that they be embedded. So. Uh, we're pretty proud of the, the work that we've done, the staff's done, and we've got a couple companies associated with us that work the Hill on a regular basis, and they've obviously done a great, great job as well. But we also decided in the process that we needed to, we needed to brand ourselves a little bit differently after five years. Uh, we wanted a new name that better represented who we are, where we are, and where we intend to go. Uh, so with that in mind, uh, while there's not gonna be a balloon drop, Ceiling's not high enough. I don't hear the band or the trumpets, but we are now the Bipartisan Commission on Biodefense. And I might add as a... Uh, Which is the only bipartisan thing within 50 miles. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, but I'm glad, I'm glad Jim said that. I mean, isn't it interesting that uh, the panel has had that focus on mission, and the politics has been external to our collective focus on a mission. And I think one of the reasons that we decided, Asha decided, let's just, we still have a lot of work to do in what appears to many of us to be a fairly toxic environment, where the notion of bipartisanship is uh, maybe something that historians refer to as they looked at the 20th century. I'm not sure they used the word in the 21st century, so we're proud of it. And frankly, because of the mission and the work we've done, we do have bipartisan support on the Hill, but we just wanted to change, um, we just wanted to change uh, the name because we're gonna continue to be strong advocates for very specific recommendations. We're gonna continue to dive deeper and deeper into the multiple, la multiple layered concerns we have about biodefense. So, uh, we will uh, look beyond the blueprint to address emerging uh, biological threats and uh, vulnerabilities. And uh, frankly, uh, we're grateful for your continued support of this group. And we're grateful for the opportunity to serve our country in a bipartisan fashion. So I just want to announce that. We've got a very interesting uh, panel today. We've got some uh, 
Well, let me turn to my colleagues. I, you know, if I was running for the Senate, I'd go on and on, but I'm done with that, so go ahead. <laughs> Senator Daschle? Well, Mr. Chairman, I, let me just uh, compliment you on your remarks and pick up a little bit on the theme of what, uh, what you have just articulated. I, over the years, I've had a number of occasions to create organizational entities and extend my public service in the, in the private sector. And as I reflect on what has made them successful, it, it seems to me that the most important quality of anything permanent around here is how bipartisan it is. I say bipartisan, and I don't mean nonpartisan, because I see value in bringing different perspectives and opinions to light, which is what we've been able to do somewhat successfully over the last five years here. Science and policy and politics and government, they all benefit from an informed debate that results not just from accepting, but also encouraging different opinions. And we've certainly had them here, but they've always been presented, in, in my view, in a very constructive light, in a, in a way to think through just the different contexts within which we are asked to come to some conclusion. So when it comes to our commission, it's clear to me that we benefit from, from what happens when you have that, that bipartisan sense of, of purpose and bipartisan sense of, of, of operational responsibility. And as with any commission, we understand that the focus uh, certainly doesn't occur in a, in a vacuum. Politics really have always been part of the environment, and every commission must understand and address those politics. And we certainly are, are, are cognizant of the, the difficulty around politics in Washington today. So I agree with Governor Ridge that we've accomplished a great deal. We're building on the work of other commissions that have gone before us, and there have been a number of them. I'd, this, this group certainly is every bit as familiar with uh, who I'm, to whom I'm referring, but the U.S. Commission on National Security, the National Commission on Terrorist Attacks upon the United States, the Commission on Intelligence Capabilities of the United States regarding weapons of mass destruction, the Commission on the Prevention of Weapons of Mass Destruction, Proliferation, and Terrorism. So we don't take this name on lightly. We realize it comes with a lot of responsibility, and we hope it projects what we want it to project, that we're going to continue to look for bipartisan solutions, recognizing that as we do, collectively bringing together different ideas and different perspectives and different views on the way we get there is critical to that process. So with it, we can more accurately portray the work we do and how we do it. And I look forward now to continuing our work as the Bipartisan Commission on Biodefense. With that, I'll turn it back to you. Thanks, Tom. I had my tongue partly in my cheek when I said we're the only bipartisan thing around, but uh, uh, the fact of the matter is that there's a lot less of it than there was when the three of us served in the United States Congress when we got a lot done in a bipartisan way. So I think that in itself is a very important signal to send uh, to uh, all of the to, the, to the Hill and to the, to the public and to the media that this really is a bipartisan thing. When I came to bio 14 and a half years ago, the organization was called the Biotechnology Industry Organization. And I never was comfortable with that title because of two reasons. One, industry sounded like connotes smokestacks to me, which is not what biotechnology is much about. And also, I think it connoted a, sort of a pure self-interest as opposed to what, what uh, we're really all about, which is innovation, 
on behalf of patients and innovation on behalf of protecting the country from um, bioterror attacks and pandemics, et cetera. So we changed it to the Biotechnology Innovation Organization. Thank thankfully, innovation starts with the same letter as, as industry, so we didn't have to, we're still, we're still bio. Um, but uh, I think it does, as, as this name change, uh, our name change here uh, de designates that um, we're still studying. We're studying today. We're learning. I think we probably have done more to advance the, the knowledge about these issues than, than any other entity has. Um, but it also uh, sends the message that we're not just about studying and not creating another study to sit on a shelf somewhere, but really about getting the job done. And uh, I think we're doing pretty well on that front, too. And I will yield back. Mr. Chairman. Thank you. I appreciate that. Well, the, uh, the commission, uh, and actually thank you, Asha, and, and your team for uh, uh, helping us uh, pull together this uh, very distinct group of uh, public and private sector uh, panelists today uh, to take a, a much deeper look uh, into this whole challenge associated with biodefense and, and uh, actually three or four objectives that we hope several perspectives on the following issues that we're going to ask our panels to talk about so we all have a better understanding of the convergence of cyber and biological science, uh, the vulnerability of pathogen and biomanufacturing data systems. I mean, there's a digital war going on. Uh, there's national espionage, uh, economic espionage, and uh, there's a lot of uh, value to the research, both public and private, in this space. And uh, we need to protect it, that infrastructure, that intellectual infrastructure in this space. Uh, cyber biological risk mitigation, what needs to be done in both the public and private sector to address that issue, as well as an honest discussion of the vulnerability of the intellectual property and the national and global bioeconomy. And, and that's a, it is today and will become even a bigger part of our, not only our GDP, but we make the advances uh, so critical to uh, to, to health care in this country and to uh, our well-being as a country. And so we've got a great group of uh, panelists. And the first is uh, Congresswoman, is uh, Congressman Houlihan here? Seven minutes. Pardon me? Seven minutes. Seven minutes. I guess the answer is no. <laughs> <laughs> well, let them if you got them. Sorry about that. Um, do you care for making any comments? Sure. A little soft shoe. Yeah. Well, one of the things uh, we do uh, on the commission is to identify gaps. And there's an obvious gap between what we're doing for cyber defense and what we're doing for biodefense. And our purpose today is to explore that gap and to consider ways with which to do a better job of closing it. We've not been satisfied with what we've heard from government about cyber biodefense and the gaps we've found. For example, we've taken a look at what is happening in the Department of Defense. While the biosecurity lapses at the U.S. Army Medical Research Institute for Infectious Diseases are of great concern, DOD efforts to ensure adequate cyber biodefense are truly insufficient. Despite possessing two of the most powerful cybersecurity agencies in the nation, the National Security Agency and the U.S. Cyber Command, and getting assurances that these agencies are handling cybersecurity across the department, we can see that cyber biodefense is truly lacking. As today's meeting title states, the cyber bio threat is multiplicative. 
we're not going to and we're not convinced that NSA and Cybercom are addressing everything we need to do. They and the nation need to identify and assess the risks associated with pathogen and biomanufacturing data systems, dual-use synthetic biology, biological intellectual property, and the bioeconomy. We are very pleased to have some extraordinary witnesses with us today not the least of which is our first, and uh, we're delighted that she could take time from her busy schedule to be with us today, and I'll join you in welcoming her and, uh, and look forward to the day. Well, uh, ladies and gentlemen, from my perspective, uh, you can't ever have too many speakers from Pennsylvania. <laughs> I don't know why there's a built-in bias and prejudice there, but... I uh, can never have enough people from the uh, great Commonwealth. And uh, we really have an exceptional uh, member join us today. I would tell you that my staff, uh, people I know and trust, have categorized our speaker as an awesome rock star. So, uh, Congresswoman, and that's, uh, if you knew a little bit about uh, Congresswoman Holohan, you'd know that uh, she's an Air Force veteran, uh, she's an engineer. She's an educator, she's an entrepreneur, and has taken all those skills and that, uh, those perspectives and brought it to uh, House Armed Services Committee and the House of Foreign Affairs Committee. But she's had a very special interest in this subject, uh, the cyber side and the bio side. And it's pretty clear in our discussions with her that, again, when we take a look at allies on the Hill, her political uh, affiliation uh, is uh, irrelevant. Her commitment to what we're trying to do is. Uh, that's why we're so proud we announced today, Congresswoman, that we're now the, uh, the bipartisan commission. We, we think it's so important, and we appreciate your engagement on this issue, not just here, but been engaged with us on this for quite some time. So uh, without any further ado, it's a great pleasure to introduce to the panel and to uh, those in attendance, the Honorable Chrissy Holohan. Thank you. Thank you, sir. And thank you so much for everyone on the Blue Ribbon Study Panel and now Bipartisan Commission on Biodefense for having me here today. Uh, my name is Chrissy Houlihan, and I am the representative from Pennsylvania's 6th Congressional District, a freshman, so only in about the 250th day of my, of my uh, tenure here. And I am an engineer by training. I studied at Stanford and at MIT, and I did serve in the Air Force uh, as a program manager, focusing on, among other things, ballistic missile defense, as well as shocks to our infrastructure for some time. So after separating from the Air Force, I did scale a bunch of nonprofits and for-profit businesses in the southeastern part of Pennsylvania and did teach chemistry for Teach for America to high school juniors. And now uh, I am very, very honored to sit in front of you as a member of Congress. And the reason that I'm here today is really simple. We are, as a country, not doing enough to secure ourselves against the rapid advancements in cyber and biotechnology around the world. And frankly, one of the key reasons why I decided to run for Congress rather than state or local office was I felt as though there weren't enough people in Congress who were thinking about this. You can number in the dozen or so the number of people who serve on the body who have a STEM education or background, and I think that that's very worrisome, frankly. So you and the panel and this commission have been doing your part to make us more aware of the grave threats that are posed by our adversaries' rapid development in cyber and biotechnology. 
And I, of course, hear you. And But I believe that for the most part, most Americans and even my fellow members of Congress think that the idea of uh, cybersecurity and biosecurity is something they've seen on the 20, show 24 or The Matrix, which are some of my favorite shows. And it sounds silly, but it seems like that these kinds of ideas are out of a science fiction movie as opposed to the real and genu genuine threat that they are posing us. What's even more alarming in the conversations that I have with high-ranking officials in the Department of Defense and Homeland Security is that people don't see the intersection of cybersecurity and biosecurity, and they frankly really do have a very significant overlap. And we really need to be thinking about them in tandem and as they dovetail with one another. And this lack of understanding leads us to a lack of resources and a lack of personnel dedication to advancing our defenses against these potential threats, developing our biosecurity here at home, and better integrating the cyber and bio communities. So in short, this is dangerous, and we in Congress need to be legislating accordingly. And so as an engineer and a former COO, I'm looking for opportunities to present step-by-step -step solutions. And here's what I've come up with so far in my very few days here. The first step we obviously have uh, accomplished, which is to identify the problem. Uh, you can't see it if you don't understand what it is. And through your research and efforts, the problem has, has been identified. And we can and should continue to identify aspects of the problem through congressional hearings and closed-door briefings, which I've been lucky enough to be a part of in those few, first few months. The second step is to elevate that problem through the proper channels. And this, I believe, is where I and my classmates and, my, and the, the rest of the body come in. I've passed pieces of legislation this year in, in this year's National Defense Authorization Act, or NDAA, that would begin the overdue work of highlighting, explaining, and elevating our shared concerns. The first has to do with enhancing our cybersecurity of biosecurity and pathogen threat data. As you are aware, DOD's work on biosecurity and pathogen threats spans several subordinate organization, organizations. The security of this data is critical to our country's national security, and my legislation directs the Secretary of Defense to submit a report to the Congressional Defense Committees no later than March 1, 2020, to assess the cybersecurity of the Department of Defense entities engaged in the development, storage, processing, and transmission within the department and to other United States government entities of data related to biothreats and, bio and pathogens. The report should describe vulnerabilities or deficiencies and recommend steps for remediation of such vulnerabilities and deficiencies, and a complementary implementation plan for addressing the report's recommendations should be provided to the Congressional Defense Committees no later than one year after the delivery of the report. The second uh, idea in legislation identifies the particular threat that China poses. I do have a lot of background and experience in doing business in China through the athletic apparel and footwear industry, amongst other things, and China is a rising and pressing threat, I believe. But this is less about the threat of bioterrorism as it is a threat of foreign adversary of great power eclipsing our biotechnology. Currently, the critical biosupply chain resides mainly in China, including elements like DNA synthesis. We are falling dangerously behind and becoming dependent on China for items like rare earths instead of developing and employing the necessary technology to develop our own stores. Also startling is the fact that the NIH spending is, as a share of GDP is falling steadily and has so since 2003, while other countries like China have continued to invest in long-term commitments to grow their biomedical sciences industry. To say the least, the Congress, the administration, and the American people should be concerned. And it, it, in fact, is what keeps me up at night. 
My legislation directs the Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence in coordination with the Director of the Defense Intelligence Agency to provide a briefing to the House Committee on Armed Services by November 1, 2019, assessing China's current and projected biological weapons program, the risk presented to the joint force, and a mitigation strategy to protect U.S. military forces against said threats. So that's step two. And the step three is education of the American people. I can tell you that I ran for Congress for about two years, and not one time did anybody say to me, I'm really concerned about cybersecurity or biosecurity. But every time I brought it up as something that I was concerned about, I had a, a vigorous head shake when they realized that that actually was something to be concerned about. And the point is not to scare people, but really to educate them. Because the more informed our populace is, the more engaged and active the populace becomes in pushing for reform, the better off we are. And those here today and I both know how critical this work is, and the American people need to know it too. They should know what we're up against. They should know that these industries, both bio and cyber, can work together to transform our technological spaces and revolutionize so many aspects of our life, everything from healthcare to manufacturing. Those working in these fields should also be brought to the table for a conversation as we work to break down the barriers between our government and industry and to provide information sharing and the application of best practices. We in the government should be working towards building an incentive structure that allows to better recruit and better retain the talent that we need for this, in, this area. Thank you so much, gentlemen, for your time today and for this opportunity to continue to shed light and make more real the important work that we're all doing to both boost our cyber and biodefense capabilities. Thank you. Thank you, Congresswoman. My colleagues and I will have a few questions for you, if you don't mind. And I suspect you've got a pretty busy day scheduled, so yes, we won't sir. keep you too long. I'm, I'm intrigued by the notion that uh, you, 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 looking within DOD to uh, have them uh, disclose gaps and vulnerabilities, which is they, which they should. Is there any concern that the disclosure would be public, or would you anticipate that uh, the disclosure of these gaps and vulnerabilities be uh, a, 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 a non-public briefing? I mean, how, how do you take a look at that? Because sure. we, we do have the concern. Uh, there's a lot of information out there under the control, and we're not, obviously, uh, it's a big big target, particularly in the crosshairs of the Chinese, but others. So uh, what, what's your thinking about that? Sure, and in my brief time here on this side, you know, uh, being a member of the House uh, and my time in the military uh, working on classified programs largely, obviously there's a concern that there's a information that's available that makes us more vulnerable. Uh, but I do think that we need to face that information and those ideas head on so that we can address them. And so my anticipation would be that the reports that we asked for may in fact end up with a classified aspect to them as well as an open source aspect. But, you know, if we're not opening our eyes and reporting on it, then we can't respond to it. Uh, and in my short time here in the Congress, we certainly have had more than enough hearings where we've had the open part and then a closed door part as well. Good. So it's a very, uh, very reassuring. I'm really intrigued by the observation, maybe because I think it's uh, very critical. Uh, it's not only the, uh, the notion of protecting the intellectual property, but also the ascendancy of China in the space, just from an economic uh, uh, point of view, and I wish you could elaborate on that because it does think, and I would probably defer to my colleague uh, Jim Greenwood to ask even more uh, relevant questions, but uh, if uh, we let them uh, ultimately control the marketplace, we're missing some opportunities when in fact uh, 
We have been the center of innovation and research in, in this country for decades in this space, but we're losing our edge. And I'd like to give you an opportunity to editorialize a little bit about your your, your beliefs, because you, you've been working in this arena for quite some time. Sure. And it, it goes beyond just cyber issues and biosecurity issues. It goes to almost every aspect of our nation's intellectual property and, and the ability that we have here in this nation to innovate. Uh, I have, for the 30 years of my you know adult career, seen this uh, replicated over and over again, whether it's in the athletic apparel and footwear industry or products of, of the company that I work, work for would be regularly lifted and put on the feet of people in, in China before they would even make it overseas to, to the feet of people in, in the United States, or whether it's in the mushroom industry now where I live. I live uh, in the mushroom capital of the world right now, and a lot of our innovations in mushroom farming, fifth generation innovations, are now moving their way over to, to China specifically. Uh, as we uh, are unfortunately not able to, to have the labor that we need in that air area. So this goes all the way into biology as well. I think that we're, uh, we are as historically a nation of innovators, but we also need to be very cautious of what it is that we're innovating on and how it is that we're sharing that information. And that you probably have in, at some part in your conversation, a conversation about how we protect uh, our, our universities and the research, the basic research that we're doing there. Also really concerning to me is how we're doing that thoughtfully, but still allowing for this nation and the, and the globe to innovate. So I'm not sure if I answered your question other than the fact that uh, I have a long history of being cautious with our relationship with with China. Yeah, very good. Well, thank you. Senator? Well, Congresswoman, thank you for, for your, your excellent statement and for the leadership you've offered. And uh, we're, we're very, very grateful to you for, for coming today. I, you know, we talk a lot in here at the commission about how uh, we seem to have pretty broad support, but few champions. And uh, you're becoming a champion, and for that, we're especially grateful. But how, in your view, can we bring people to a better connection between cybersecurity and cyber biosecurity to realize that there is that relationship that really, from a public policy perspective, needs to be addressed more effectively? Is there a, is there a way to make that connection more effectively than we have to date? So the first step, I hope, is what we've provided through the NDAA, which is trying to unify the two concepts of cybersecurity and biosecurity and bringing them together into this one study. I think the second step is, you know, to some degree, the education step as well, which is not just with the public, but frankly, with the Congress, with the body itself, uh, because I think that uh, these conversations are, are hard to have um, when people don't have the knowledge and, and uh, kind of the vocabulary, vernacular to be able to talk about it. The last thing that I would say is that we also have a, um, a problem in our supply chain of talent. Um, we don't have enough people who are coming up and into this industry uh, generally speaking, but specifically in the defense uh, area and in uh, the federal government area. And so some of the work that I've been trying to do early days on this issue has been to try and create pipelines so that people can be able to understand what their career trajectory might look like to be able to have a career uh, in this industry, um, both on the defense side and on the on the government side. Uh, and I think right now what we've got going is a lot of, frankly, all of, all of government, a lot of silos that are thinking about the same issue but not thinking about them in an over 
overarching way. Um, I know that when I was a young lieutenant in the military, uh, I knew I made a very conscious decision to be an engineer rather than a pilot, and that meant that my career path would most likely be limited and I would be less likely to be a general, as an example. These are things that we need to be thinking of, and when we're creating those pipelines, we need to be able to make sure that young people are seeing themselves and their career paths so that they feel like that they can come to have these conversations and have good careers in these in this in these areas. I appreciate it, especially what you said about not wanting to scare people, but bringing them to a better realization of the threat. If you had to describe what you think might be one of the most consequential scenarios or threats that we face today, uh, as we elevate the profile of this issue and hopefully incorporate more. Uh, ways with which to address the challenge going forward in public policy. Could you describe a scenario that causes you greatest concern or greatest, uh, as you see, the greatest uh, potential for serious thought about how we Sure. How we would look at it. I see. Up. I see a lot of things that concern me. Um, one of you know the most extreme issue is something that I think people understand and are, are worried about things like Ebola. But I don't think that that's necessarily where the biggest threat is. I think that the biggest threat is possibly just a pandemic that we didn't anticipate coming out of Africa or Asia because of climate issues that are causing the uh, rapid, more rapid evolution of, of these kinds of, um, of germs. I'm worried about things like uh, the, the, w the, the fact that uh, superbugs are becoming more and more of an issue, and I think we should be thinking about that too. So the defense aspect of this is something that is, of course, concerning, but on the larger scale, just biology in general, you know, is the thing that I think that we should all be thinking about more thoughtfully as our planet changes more rapidly, as we become a smaller and smaller place to live on and more and more connected with one another. Well said. Thank you. Nice to see you again. Yes. Um, I remember uh, right after 9-11, I was the chair of the Energy and Commerce Oversight Investigation Subcommittee, and one of the first things I did with my staff is fly on down to the CDC in Atlanta uh, because we were worried that the smallpox samples um, <laughs> that were stored there uh, might be vulnerable. And, of course, that was a moment we were so traumatized we were thinking of every single Everything. possible yep. threat to the nation. Yep. and. We were we were working with them to figure out could armed forces, you know, attack the CDC. What were the security they had there? Could they break in? Could they get into the into the refrigeration system and steal that? Now, what we worry about is can someone, uh, a bad actor, sit with a laptop and um, and be able to hack into the genetic sequences um, that could enable them to um, synthesize you know, deadly pathogens. So we're in an entirely different world now. One of the things that I found, and I'm, and I'm glad that you found that in the first 250 days uh, in Congress, it took me longer, um, is that um, uh, the, the, the critical nature of congressional oversight, you know, and it's not that the executive branch are filled with dunderheads, it's just that like any uh, of us, they have so many things to do that they think of their core mission and they're not necessarily thinking about issues like cybersecurity um, that surround uh, and, and need to protect their core mission. And it was by constantly having hearing after hearing after hearing um, that forced them to, f to have that focus. 
and to prepare for the hearing and to know that there was going to be another hearing six months hence and they had to get the job done. So I think you're very much uh, on, the, on the right track. Um, and and um, that's why I'm really appreciative of the language that you put in the Defense Authorization Act to get the Defense Department to, uh, to look into these things. As you were doing that, did, did you feel like you and your staff and the committee staff had actually identified the inadequacies yet, or is it more like you're, you're forcing them to um, come to you with a, a full explanation of, of how well they are or are not doing? Yeah, I think it's more of the latter. This is uh, this is sort of a forcing mechanism more than anything uh, to begin the conversation and to begin the process of getting report backs and sort of a, a regular conversation about this. And so uh, similarly, we did uh, this same thing, frankly, on the readiness side when we were talking about the fact that very few... Uh, 70% of the people who apply to be in our military are ready to be in our military. And so we also put in sort sort of an analog on the NDAA about that as well. So this is the beginning process where the report back will come in a year. Uh, and then hopefully we'll be able to circle back around and say, now that we've learned what we've learned, you know, let's move forward on it. Uh, I share your concern about the fact that we now can probably uh, at any bench at anywhere do a lot of damage. Uh, I had the opportunity to tour what amounts to a we work in my community that is biology focused. You know, we, my community is both farms and pharma is kind of the way that you can think about it. But we have appropriately small businesses that are coming to these, you know, uh, shared workspaces to begin their biology companies. Uh, and that should be something that we that we elevate and that we celebrate. But it also should be something that we're really, really worried about. You can rent a bench, you know, in my er in my area. And who knows what, you know, kind of open source information that people can do. Uh, I know that I, you know, in my high school classes, we were able to show people how to splice, you know, genes in high school, you know, and so we just need to be thinking about what it is, what the implications are of, of our rapidly growing um, access to science. Since you mentioned the um, competition with China, and I think the, uh, Governor Ridge referenced, you know, the, the, whether our leadership was at risk, um, you know, we're still, we still lead the world. 57% uh, of all of the innovative uh, new drugs are innovated here, so more than the rest of the world combined. But China is, like in so many other ways, bearing down on us. Um, in their five-year plan, they have seven pillars, and for the last three of their five-year plans, biotechnology has been one of those pillars. So um, you know, they have industrial policy, um, which is not something we do in the U.S. per se, um, but that's one of the things that's driving the investment they've made. They've invested billions of dollars about 10 years ago, I went to visit Chinese Medical City, uh, and to me, it was like a Sputnik mo moment to see how much they were, you know, intent on 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 g gaining on us. Um, we still have the edge, but um, and, and the following will be a commercial, but it, <laughs> but um, uh, in my mind, the thing that threatens uh, our superiority in this field more than anything else is some of the ideas that are flowing, floating around in the United States Congress and, in, frankly, in the White House, um, that um, um, <clears throat> short-sighted efforts to vilify the biotechnology industry, um, and usually quite ill-informed um, uh, um, efforts, are really the greatest threat to our ability to continue to innovate. And, and so I want to thank you, because you just last month um, 
sat down with me and a, a whole group of biotech innovators in your district and listened very carefully to what they had to say which about what was what it's going to take for us to continue to lead in this field both both in terms of making new drugs but also in terms of of making uh, countermeasures against uh, bioterror and mm -hmm. pandemic so mm -hmm. thank you for that mm -hmm. thank you okay. good morning i'm ken weinstein i'm First, I want to apologize for being late. No problem. Uh, I was a sorry. little tardy, too. I'm very sorry I missed your program. I was actually doing a training program this morning, but uh, down the street, and I missed, um, uh, well, the unveiling of the crest. Which, <laughs> did we have a ceremony about this? We did? It's a very nice crest. It's sort of the Captain America look. I like it. Um, Captain America. But it really is. It really is. Um, it actually is very nice. It captures, I think, which I'm sure you've discussed, but it captures what this, the essence of this group, which is it's bipartisan, really focusing on an issue, and bring us all together to, to meet this threat. Um, but I wanted to, uh, along that line, sort of wanted to ask you about uh, Congress and the extent you've already addressed this, let me know. Um, as you know from our recommendations, we one of our primary recommendations was uh, how the government, the executive branch should adjust its organization to sort of bring more focus on the bio threat issue. And we also had recommendations for Congress as well. Um, and while you know the executive branch obviously is taking the active operational lead, and those reorganizational ideas I think are, are critical to actually you know uh, having an operational impact, Congress plays a really important role here in terms of you know, legislation, obviously, but also oversight. And as you know, the oversight responsibilities for this field are like in so many um, areas are widely scattered across Congress, and uh, we think if with more focused oversight, um, more sort of intense probing of what is being done and not being done by the executive branch, I think we'd see uh, that would spur more action. Uh, do you have any thoughts about sort of whether that's possible? And I get it that it's sure. not not just a matter of moving boxes around on an organizational chart. It's, you know, it's, it's a matter of jurisdiction. That's always a dicey thing to try to deal with. But do you have any thoughts about how maybe we can either reorganize or refine the uh, oversight organization on the Hill to sort of bring a little more intense focus on Sure. Decision. I mean, let me tell you kind of, I, I tried to almost choose my own major when I got into Congress. I understand that, you know, how you pick your committees sort of shapes your, your world. And so for me, I chose the uh, Armed Services Committee with uh, Emerging Threats Subcommittee uh, for obvious reasons. I chose uh, the uh, Foreign Affairs with Asia and Africa for obvious reasons. So I've kind of tried to put myself in the right place for these kinds of issues. Uh, and I think that I also, to your point, now that you're you know, putting ideas in my head, I also helped start a group called Four Country, which is a bipartisan caucus, uh, nine uh, Republicans and 10 Democrats that have no ideolog ideological thing in common, which is uncommon for a caucus. We have in common that we've served. Uh, and this may be something that we could bring to that really nascent you know, new caucus to say this is something that we all should share the anxiety and concern about that that our nation should share, and maybe this is one place that I can bring you know where I sit on committees and ask the folks in this uh, committee this uh, caucus that meets once a week to think about whether or not there's legislation they might be able to support with me or oversight they might be able to support with me. The second thing I would tell you is. As I said, there's only about a handful of maybe a 10 or so of us uh, in Congress with STEM and STEAM backgrounds. Uh, I, I will try and take as an action item as well to try and put them together bipartisanly and talk about this issue. Uh, and so you've given me some ideas of what to take back. 
You're welcome. It's, it's an aside. How many veterans are there in Congress these days? It's a dwindling number. It is a dwindling time. number. It's around 20% uh, of, of Congress. Uh, we doubled the number of women veterans uh, in Congress from two to four. Uh, so <laughs> On the ascendancy. <laughs> it's heading in the right direction. Yeah, yeah, very yeah. good. Well, you know, regardless of the political persuasion or the, or the uniform they wore, same team, same fight. Exactly. And so if you can pull together around some of these critical national security issues, and we view this as a national security issue, uh, your leadership uh, is uh, critical in that effort. And just as someone who was proud to wear the uniform a long, long time ago, I appreciate and applaud it and understand it. Uh, a couple you. of thoughts, if I might, from you. Um, I don't know if there is a, uh, a word in Mandarin for theft. Uh, when I look at uh, the espionage being conducted by um, the government, uh, either directly or indirectly through groups that it funds and then ignores. But, so they're going to uh, try to gain ascendancy in this arena uh, through theft, and they're also going to try to innovate and R&D, and as uh, Jim pointed out, it's a pretty high priority for President Xi. How sensitive do you think the private sector is uh, when it comes to issues of cybersecurity relative uh, to that intellectual property, relative to the research and development going on? And, and for that matter, even the, the academic community. Have you had any uh, reason to believe that the their commitment, which will mean also resources, but to shore up, uh, uh, you know, build those digital uh, fortifications to protect that intellectual property is something they take seriously or your comments, please. So I, I think I, I'm, amongst other things, an entrepreneur, and I've built a number of small businesses into large businesses. And it's just as you said, you know, we we uh, it's a lot to manage to grow a, a business, period. And uh, you'd like to assume the best of your partners, your supply chain partners and others. And we are sort of, in growing businesses, we try to assume the best in, in that. Uh, we also, I think, we're uh, relatively naive about the exposures that we had in in cyber amongst other areas when we were growing the businesses that I've participated in. And that's why I think we really need to be helpful with the supply chain, our own supply chain, to be able to educate people on what their vulnerabilities are when they're growing you know, small businesses to large businesses when they're working internationally, which most businesses are working internationally at this point in time, uh, to make sure that people understand that they are their their businesses are vulnerable, but also the information that they share up and down the supply chain uh, is also vulnerable. And you're only as strong as your weakest link. One thing that I learned uh, being on the armed services is Pennsylvania is number nine for defense appropriations. And if you looked around Pennsylvania, you wouldn't think about us as being some defense stronghold. It's not as obvious as places like maybe Virginia. Uh, Chester County, which is where I come from, is number one. Um, and again, you'd look around and say, that doesn't make any sense. There's not a you know, military base here or anything like that. But it's all those small businesses. You know, It's all those mid-sized businesses that are part of the supply chain. And we should be thinking about that. And again, one of the things I did through the NDA, we did through the NDAA, was trying to basically give them a Give people a cyber gym, you know, gym membership to be able to come in and be helpful, uh, us to be helpful as, uh, and concern, help them be concerned about their uh, cyber health, I guess, for lack of a better description. One final question, if I might. I want to take advantage of your extraordinary career and the perspectives that you bring to this, uh, this question. 
uh, but as an educator, um, how did you or how have you historically encouraged young men and women to take on the rigorous studies associated with STEM? Mm -hmm. um, because it's the hardest disciplines, uh, clearly intellectually as demanding and rigorous as anything else out there. And I can say that as a liberal economics and government major is a discipline, but it's not close to those who have to take on chem, bio, and the rest of that stuff. So just for, my, for our benefit and for the benefit of the audience, you're an educator. You're trying to encourage young people to take on the challenges associated with probably the most rigorous discipline in the academic world, which is obviously critical to and oper great opportunities for them uh, in the future, but also very important to the country. How did you encourage young people to do that? So uh, not terribly successfully as a mother, I have three daughters, and they're in their 20s, and none of them went into the STEM professions, even though I really, really tried hard. But what I can tell you is that our economy uh, asks for a certain set of skills that may not necessarily be STEM skills, but they're skills of logic, you know, skills of being able to take what you've learned and apply it to a really rapidly changing economy. Uh, I taught high school chemistry to 11th grade kids, as I mentioned, through Teach for America in North Philadelphia. My kids were 97, 98% free and reduced lunch, 97, 98% African American, and they were largely reading at the third and fourth grade level. And so the idea that these guys were going to be able to successfully understand and embrace what it was that I was teaching from chemistry and be able to move that into the economy was pretty impossible, which is why I spend so much time focusing on early childhood literacy, early childhood development, you know, pre-K through fourth grade uh, skills, uh, numeracy skills and literacy skills, because it's impossible to ask the folks coming up in our economy to be able to be in the STEM and STEAM fields if they can't, uh, if they can't read by fourth grade. So I guess the thing that I would advocate for most strongly is that we think about that and basic numeracy skills before we move forward on, you know, how to make sure we get people into the STEM and STEAM fields. I rarely speak for an entire group of people in a room, but I think we'd all put a couple exclamation points after that observation. If they haven't learned to read and write basic skills by the third or fourth grade, the rest of their time in education is going to be remedial. And uh, we're losing a lot of young people who probably have latent talent, but we haven't been able to pull it out of them. But uh, the other thing I'd share with you is I just got an email from my uh, alma mater that says a freshman who starts now and Stanford starts late and completes four years of undergraduate in the STEM fields, by the time they graduate, half of what they've learned will be obsolete. So everything is moving so quickly that it's less about what you learn and more about how you learn. Uh, and that's really important to emphasize, too. My colleagues on the panel, anything further for this extraordinary witness and friend of the panels? We can't thank you enough uh, for your sure. service to our thank country you so much for having and community us. in so many different ways. Thank, thank you, you, Congresswoman. Now, ladies and gentlemen, for our first panel on the vulnerability of pathogen and biomanufacturing data systems, we've got some experts who will address the vulnerability and misuse of pathogen databases digital sequences, uh, software to design novel DNA sequences, and uh, something that our the Congressman referred to, biomanufacturing supply chain data systems and their vulnerability. Uh, 
Dr. Calvin Lee, the director of the National Institute for Innovation in Manufacturing Biopharmaceuticals. He's the Gore Professor, Department of Chemical Engineering, Delaware Biotechnical Institute, the University of Delaware, Blue Inn. Uh, Christopher Oman, Dr. Oman, Chief Scientist, Cybersecurity Group, Pacific Northwest National Laboratory. And uh, John Carisi, uh, lawyer, uh, but also uh, uh, a public preparedness expert and a principal in Tiber Creek Partners. Uh, gentlemen, if you please come forward and give us the benefit of your experience and your perspective perspective on these critical issues. We welcome all of you. Uh, Dr. Lee, we may commence with you. Thank you. Sure. Thank you very much uh, for this opportunity to be with you today. I want to start with a, a little administrative note, which is that I'm very fortunate to be serving on a National Academy's consensus study uh, called Safeguarding the Bioeconomy, Finding Strategies for Understanding, Evaluating, and Protecting the Bioeconomy While Sustaining Innovation and Growth. And that committee, which is chaired by Tom Connolly from the American Chemical Society, began its work late last year and has not yet issued a public report. So everything I'm going to share today uh, reflects my personal views based on public or general information. And unfortunately, I won't be able to answer questions about the committee's work or findings. Uh, that report is scheduled, though, for release early next year. And it would also be a mistake to construe anything that I say as being representative of the deliberations of that committee. And the statement of task for those who are interested in other information about that National Academies Committee is available on the committee's website. So I want to thank the commission for drawing attention uh, to the important topic of cyber bioconvergence. And I'm really quite humbled to participate in this panel focused on the vulnerability of pathogen and biomanufacturing data systems. We are in an era of incredible technological advancement across a variety of sectors, including biomanufacturing. The fundamental advances made in life sciences over the past several decades provide a foundation for significant economic and societal prosperity for our country. From renewable sources of energy to increased agricultural productivity to medicines, that can improve the quality of life, substantially extend life, and protect us from national and man-made public health threats, we all benefit from advances in biotechnology. And moreover, the recent convergence of advances in high-throughput technologies for data collection, big data analytics, engineering, robotics, and other technologies are really moving the bioeconomy forward faster than ever before. And our nation's continued investment in basic R&D, coupled with this convergence, is helping to fuel continued growth and prosperity, while also providing opportunities for advanced manufacturing jobs and economic opportunity for people from diverse backgrounds, as well as from rural and urban communities. And that said, with the increasing reliance on cyber and digital systems within the biotechnology community, there is certainly a need to ensure that the organizations and individuals associated with the bioeconomy be educated about and follow best practices for digital biosecurity. Now, I first heard the term digital biosecurity from Alexander Titus in the Department of Defense. He used it to reflect that as biotechnology becomes increasingly digital, that the biotech community must now pay particular attention to cybersecurity-related issues such as data security, data integrity, and so forth. His term, which is admittedly different than cyber biosecurity, also raises a question about whether we need new solutions for new problems or whether the biotech community 
also just needs to more aggressively add cybersecurity considerations earlier into their conversations. Regardless of the terminology, it's clear that digital-related threats can have a significant impact on biopharmaceutical manufacturing. That's an area that Nimble works in. Nimble is a large-scale public-private partnership that I help lead, which, as you reflected, stands for the National Institute for Innovation in Manufacturing Biopharmaceuticals. Our community has seen the impact of a malicious computer worm, not Petya, that took Merck's manufacturing processes offline for a period of time in 2017, resulting in an estimated more than $1 billion in damages. This incident also resulted in shortages of Gardasil vaccine and may, may have contributed to stockouts of the hepatitis B vaccine. Such an incident is obviously quite visible, but other cyber-related impacts can be more subtle. The variation associated with the use of biological systems in manufacturing inherently can present risks to product consistency. The highly regulated biofarm manufacturing industry has developed extensive bioprocess control strategies and quality testing procedures to mitigate risks for established classes of biotherapeutics to ensure consistent production and minimal lot-to-lot -lot variability. Nonetheless, there will always be the potential for some level of unexpected natural genetic drift in biological systems or even some malicious introduction. And that would be difficult to, be, to predict, detect, and mitigate. Another area of potential concern is around the security of genetic information at the cyberbiological interface, the security of DNA synthesizers and sequencers, the ability to confirm the DNA sequence used to transfect a so-called cell line, the security of how and where the genetic information is stored, and all of the issues that can result downstream from the manipulations of these, such as how a cell behaves in culture, to the quality attributes of the medicine or the product, all of this needs to be assured. The industry today mitigates such risks through effective quality management systems. Nonetheless, the paradigms for biopharmaceutical manufacturing are changing, as are the products and the types of products themselves. There is currently significant interest in the movement away from batch manufacturing towards a more continuous, on-demand manufacturing paradigm in the biopharmaceutical industry. In these approaches, there's even more reliance on process monitoring and testing to control the manufacturing process. As a result, there's more emphasis on digital information. And in some of the newest types of medicines that have been approved, for example, personalized treatments for certain pediatric cancers, a patient is treated with a custom manufactured lot of a medicine that can be transformative for that patient and the family when it's made available, or result in death for the terminally ill child if it's not provided in a timely manner. So here, the digital associated risks can also be especially concerning. I'll end these remarks by commenting that a cybersecurity related failure in biopharmaceutical manufacturing can have a significant impact on the supply of medicines and on patient health. Among the potential impacts of a failure to adequately secure relevant processes are economic losses to the industry due to manufacturing processes that are out of specification, patient and public health impacts resulting from low quality or lost batches of medicine, potential exposure of employees to harmful agents, and an inability to respond rapidly to emergent public health threats. Thank you for having me today. I look forward to the perspective of my fellow panelists and any discussion we'll have. Thank you very much, Dr. Lee. Dr. Hudson? My name is Corey Hudson. I'm a manager at, of uh, computational biology and biophysics at Sandia National Labs. 
Uh, Chris Oman, who was originally scheduled to be here, was, was not able to make the meeting today. As I'll discuss later in the talk, uh, Chris and I are part of a multi-laboratory team working on biological cybersecurity and cyber biosecurity involving Chris's lab, Pacific Northwest National Lab, my lab at Sandia, uh, Los Alamos National Lab, and several other collaborators in government, industry, and academia. These are the remarks that follow are Chris's, but I'm happy to be part of this panel as someone who works in this field. And I believe that these remarks mark part of a larger collaboration that shows just how serious many of us consider this issue. I would like to begin by thanking the, this commission um, for the opportunity to participate in this panel today. I truly believe that the work being done here is of the utmost importance in addressing the urgent and compelling case facing the United States. Let me begin by presenting cyber biosecurity from the perspective of a scientist working in uh, both computational biology and cybersecurity. Our team, the multi-lab team, represents a multi-lab collaboration that includes Pacific Northwest National Labs, Sandia National Laboratories, Los Alamos National Laboratories, <coughs> academics, and government in addressing, uh, who, one of whom, Ed Yu, will be addressing the panel later today. Together, we've defined cyber biosecurity as a broad collection of activities with stakeholders, stakeholder communities focused on collectively ensuring the security and integrity of national resources and biotechnology. This includes the familiar areas of national biothreat countermeasure stockpiles and biological disaster response infrastructure. But it goes far beyond this. Much of our biotechnology industry academic and government research depends on a global communal ecosystem of data, software, and computing e infrastructure, all of which resides in a hostile cyber environment accessible to adversaries in all regions of the globe. This public resource began as a well-intentioned global science community designed to facilitate rapid development through the sharing of data and software enabled by a growing, the growing availability of computing on demand through technologies like cloud architecture and an aggressive effort to make federally funded research openly available. Security was not a primary concern because scientific credibility compelled users to exert great effort to share only high quality data and applications. But as this resource grew in size and usefulness, so too did its impact on public health policy and the economic, economic impact on biotechnology and pharma industrial sectors, as well as the DOD and national readiness posture. Today, there are terabytes and petabytes of publicly accessible and publicly changeable data that we use every day to develop new biotechnologies. There are also computer-driven genome sequencing systems and downstream analysis platforms that together are producing so much data that the total body of biological data stored on computing resources doubles every 18 months, outpacing growth in analytic computing resources themselves. Vaccines and medicines are being designed using this and other data, along with a host of publicly generated and open access software tools, sometimes running on public cloud platforms. All of this has generated, all of this has driven a modern revolution in the rate of new biological insights, which rely on public interactive nature of the, this critical infrastructure. And the intersection of this with the Internet of Things revolution will increase efficiency of the whole system, dramatically expanding its digital footprint, all with unknown security implications. 
Let us now imagine what the risk of this resource were compromised using classic cybersecurity triad of integrity, availability, and confidentiality. From the integrity perspective, if data in sequence repositories or sequence analysis centers is corrupted, regardless of whether it was malicious or accidental, then vaccines could be created that attack the wrong virus or no virus at all, leaving us unprotected during a biological disaster. Technologies that identify biological agents could give incorrect answers, blinding us to the presence of threats and delaying response at the cost of lives. Non-viable candidate medicines uh, could su be supported by failing by faked data at the great cost to the biotechnology industry. Um, from the availability perspective, if the nation were denied access to this resource at a critical moment, um, for instance, while we are attempting to respond to a never-before-seen biological threat, we might lose our ability to detect and respond, again, at the cost of lives. And from the confidentiality perspective, losing privacy uh, of our biological data risks exposing personal information of, for instance, study participants, like those in the Veterans Administration's One Million Genome Project, who have graciously provided their biological data so that many may benefit. Today, much of our safety and economic well-being relies on the security of this resource. Yet without security being designed in from the beginning, we are left vulnerable to deliberate or accidental misuse and we can, that can have nationally catastrophic effects. Given this understanding, it is our recommendation that the nation first def clearly define roles, authorities, and expectations for departments and agencies that own various pieces of the solutions to this challenge. Second, prioritize and fund research into novel solutions to safeguard bioeconomy protecting resources without limiting the utility afforded by the current environment. And third, create bridges between the many stakeholder groups, including academia, federally funded research and development centers, industry and vendors, and government institutions to facilitate the exchange of ideas, technology, and practical solutions. It is essential that whatever we do to protect these resources, it not interfere with their usability, because any slowdown in this process risks our position at the global forefront of innovation and biotechnology, as well as our biodefense readiness. Defining clear roles, authorities, and expectations for government is a complex challenge. Many, many agencies with different bioscience and biodefense equities are involved, including DOD, who is responsible for biodefense, as well as warfighter readiness and veterans' health, HHS, which is responsible for human health and most of the associated basic science research, and maintains many of these pertinent databases. DHS, who is responsible for the nation's critical information technology infrastructure, Department of Energy, which shepherds uh, many genomic projects and informatic tools and has expertise in development of data analytics and massive and secure data processing and management, and the Department of Justice and FBI, which are responsible for the collection, analysis, and dissemination of cyber threat information and related law enforcement activities. In addition to the U.S. entities, there are significant foreign resources that provide value to the bioeconomy, such as Uniprot, the universal protein resource. These entities should be encouraged uh, to work at ensuring the security and integrity of their resources. It is imperative that, this na that the nation also invest in research into novel solutions that safeguard the bioeconomy. There are many emerging technology areas that have, have a central role in securing these resources. The, 
machine learning and artificial intelligence make it possible to improve on the efficiency of human decision making and can speed up discovery. But transparency into these approaches is needed, as well as a better understanding of how they can be manipulated. Large-scale computing, including computing at the edge, uh, which will likely be accelerating in the coming years and drives the development of smart devices, data collection platforms, and ultimately will steer scientific instruments in real time. But the way, but a way must be found for this to happen in a secure, to happen on untrusted systems being used by users with unknown intent. Data sciences that include information fusion and statistical and other mathematical techniques applied to all stages of data, the data discovery cycle can help quantify our uncertainty and results, which is essential in good decision making. But how can we ensure the accuracy and integrity of the data in a hostile computing environment? There are many other technologies and R&D areas that could potentially result in substantial improvements in the security of the biotech research environment. Finally, as this panel knows well, stakeholder community engagement will be essential to the development of a robust cyber biosecurity solution. Academia, FFRDCs, government and industry partners all have different interests and investments in our publicly available resources. Communication among these stakeholders can help accelerate the understanding of the real issues and continued engagement throughout the development of solutions will be required to increase the likelihood that users will actually adopt new security technologies. If these stakeholders can be brought together to determine requirements for practical solutions, the research and development community and ultimately the industrial community can plan and execute roadmaps to realize these solutions at a reasonable cost. In closing, I would like to summarize by reiterating that protecting our bioeconomy is an urgent matter with far-reaching impacts in public health and well-being, readiness posture in responding to biothreats, and maintaining the competitiveness of the U.S. in the bioeconomy. The ecosystem of biotechnology that underpins this resource is, by design, accessible and highly dynamic, benefiting the pace of modern biological research. Fueled by continuous improvements in biotechnology, availability of computing, data networking, open source software development, and smart network devices, our bioeconomy is at the forefront of importance in ensuring our health and success. Yet if we don't prioritize discovering ways to protect this resource without limiting its utilities, we are vulnerable. The good news is that many institutions are poised to do their part in this solution. As a scientist, I applaud this commission for tackling this technically challenging but critical issue. By developing a clearly illuminated path forward, I am confident that we will rapidly advance our ability to defend and protect the US bioeconomy, thereby enabling a more secure future. Thank you, Dr. Hudson. Thank you, and, and thanks to the panel and Dr. George for the invitation. As uh, Governor Ridge already pointed out, I'm approaching this issue not as a scientist, as a lawyer and a policy guy. Um, and in preparing for this, I was reflecting back on the history and you know, sitting in front of you, it, it's very interesting. I remember meeting with Governor Ridge and Mark Holman in the White House um, right after the anthrax attacks and thinking about how the pharmaceutical industry can respond. And then a few months later, um, I think it was a couple of days after the agency stood up, meeting with Secretary Ridge and Sally Canfield in your office. I remember two things. There was a handwritten note in the door saying, Department of Homeland Security, please knock. And I remember uh, passing by your office with you on the phone with Senator Kennedy with a giant bucket dripping water from the roof in front of your desk. And welcome to the third largest agency of government. So hopefully things have changed since then. 
um, working with Congressman Greenwood and his staff, um, and particularly Tom DeLinge on the passage of BioShield in the House, and many others in this room, Scooter Libby, Rachel Levinson, Monique Monsora, and all of this because of the attack on Senator Daschle and, and the people of that day. So, so reflect, reflecting how we got here and where we're going next, I, I do think there's a sense of urgency to what my panelists have said, what we're going to hear from Agent Yu later today, that the threat that we're facing um, from this topic is perhaps graver than the one we faced uh, in October of 2001 and continue to face in bioterrorism. Uh, as we've heard, our adversaries are gathering and exploiting data of national importance to compromise our country and our health. A lot of this gathering is not done through hacking and cybersecurity. It's done through acquisition in the capital markets or through willing participation Americans willing to freely share their data uh, for genetic testing or other things. Uh, we have seen the risk of compromise to important data sets. The IG recently reported that the All of Us study at NIH um, has some challenges on security. And the vast array of omic data that's being gathered, um, as we've already talked about, whether it's metabolomics, proteomics, genomics, genetics, all um, creates a problem. The manufacturing risk is also there, uh, I think, as my fellow panelists pointed out. Um, as these processes get more optimized, on-demand manufacturing has its benefits. It also has its challenges because it puts us at vulnerability for these cyber attacks. And if we've looked at the tests of those systems, they are vulnerable. But most importantly, and, and this is where I really think the threat is most grave, if you take a step back, this data or these data, um, particularly genetic and genomic information, the hands of their adversaries undermines two of our greatest strengths. One is our cultural diversity and genetic diversity. There is no such thing as an American. That gives us strength because we're less vulnerable to attack and manipulation because of that. And second, and not to be excluded, and I don't think it's come up so far, is our food independence. Um, agriculture data, agriculture, um, uh, our, our food processings, both, both livestock and wheat crops and others are very vulnerable to genetic modification. Um, and as these samples and DNA informations find the hands of our adversary, it cuts at the heart of our health security and our risk. It's incumbent that we prepare for these 21st century threats today in figuring out how not only to protect this data, but to do it, I think uh, Congressman Greenwood's uh, story about changing the name of bio to innovate is very important. We have to both protect and innovate. If we can't innovate, we're gonna fall behind and we're gonna be fall more vulnerable. This is a graver threat than we've ever faced before. Um, the threats that we faced back in 2001 uh, were, not, were from non-state actors. This is from a state actor, perhaps the most economically powerful state actor we're gonna face, in addition to, of course, if this technology falls in the hands of rogue terrorists. Um, it cuts to the heart of what we are. We are our data, we are, our food is what we're doing. Um, our food is what feeds us, our food is what keeps us independent. You know, if you look at history, the wheat blight had as much to bring down the Soviet Union as most of what Ronald Reagan did. Um, so food security is very important, and this is compromised. Just to give a real-life example, um, and, and this is not meant to say that this research is dangerous by any means, but it, puts, it put it in perspective for me. Uh, DARPA recently made an award for a program called Measuring Biological Aptitude. And what that program is doing is omicking warfighters, particularly high-performing warfighters. It's looking at fighter pilots and SEALs and Rangers and figuring out what makes them them, what makes these people different from the rest of us. And it's monitoring that on a daily basis. So it's looking for different changes. An example the fighter pilot gave was if there's 25 planes and 35 pilots that can go, how do I pick the 25 pilots that moment to go in that seat for that mission? And this will monitor that in real time. It's very powerful. If you take a step back, think about what that data also means. It is the makeup of our best and brightest. It's what makes us the nation that we are. 
And if that data fall into the wrong hands, how could our national security be compromised? So I think that is a you know, stellar example of you don't have to have a tinfoil hat or believe in conspiracies or the future. This is here and now. This is the science that our scientists are doing, and you can bet that our adversaries are doing the same thing. Uh, you know, one of the quotes from the 9-11 Commission that keeps coming up is it was a failure of imagination. I think on this topic, a failure of imagination is very real if we don't address it. That's all the downside. I'm going to talk a little bit about the good news. Uh, the good news is, unlike Project BioShield, and uh, probably um, there'll be some groans from the audience, this problem doesn't take billions of dollars to fix. Um, there's enough money in government, there's enough money working on these agents, working in these agencies, whether it's the Department of Energy or HHS, to address this. This is a, this is a leadership challenge, simply that. Um, it's consolidating these resources and taking it on. But most importantly, again, these significant advances, if done right, are going to make us more competitive as a nation. So it's not just about securing our bioeconomy, it's about advancing our bioeconomy. Um, and you know, unlike in the biodefense space where it's really tough to sustain an anthrax vaccine or a smallpox vaccine for the long haul, it's very easy to sustain these technologies for the long haul because there's tremendous value to industry to spur innovation, and that's what makes it best. Um, I have three recommendations that I think are, are really important for us to, um, for us to consider and for the, for the panel to consider. Um, we already have created, with the PAPA legislation, and that was just reauthorized, the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response at HHS. The current ASPR is particularly well-suited for this mission, given his background. But obviously, his time is limited by the administration's time. Uh, that office, though, with its national security mandate, is a perfect office to kind of take on this mission. And certainly, the current ASPR is a perfect one to get it started. Why not DOD? Why not DOD? DOD's focus on the warfighter. That's a different mission. Why not the intelligence agencies? You get into libertarian concerns and civil liberty concerns. You put health data in the hands of the intelligence community. ASPR, as you all know, is the highest ranking national security health official in the country, a, a Senate confirmed assistant secretary. Um, ASPR, to their credit, has already moved out. A few uh, weeks ago, they released a broad agency announcement focused on innovation, ASPR Next. And in that, in that BA, it includes foundational technologies for these things. I think it's a very important function. Another recommendation related to ASPR is to perhaps consolidate the national security functions at HHS under ASPR and give that mantle of a, of a Senate-confirmed um, uh, assistant secretary leading the charge. Uh, a second and related uh, recommendation is to create a national data repository. I am not talking about creating a Fort Meade for our health data. Uh, it can't happen that way. This needs to be a public-private partnership modeled after Project BioShield that you're all very familiar with. Of. Um, you can harness private infrastructure. There's millions of of square feet of data centers, there's the best of cybersecurity and industry, put that to work for the government in a way that can perhaps draw in data sets of national importance and have industry rise up to create those standards. We think that's very doable. Uh, I've learned that Vice President Pence actually had a very similar vision when he was governor of Indiana and did something like this in the basement of the State House. Um, I know going back to a famous recommendation of this panel of putting the Vice President's office in charge, we have a good Vice President who possibly can take that ball and run with it. Um, the, the last point, and this one's obvious, um, I wrote this before I knew about the change in commission, but bipartisan leadership is the criticalness here. And, and thankfully, um, I, I, I definitely believe um, in, uh, in Congressman Greenwood's quip within 50-mile radius. But on this issue, we are seeing some bipartisanship. Um, Senator Warner and Senator Rubio have been working side by side on this issue and see the China threat, see the innovation threat. Senator Rubio is working closely with Senator Grassley and others now on these issues. Um, every member of Congress that I've spoken to about it has an, has an issue, has, has an interest in it. 
And again, the good news is, um, with all due respect to the Congresswoman when she spoke, we don't need to wait on legislation on this one. Um, this is just leadership. So le leadership will help, but that robust oversight that, that Mr. Weinstein focused on and that you all have focused on is probably the most important part. Um, you don't need a broad legislative mandate like BioShield. Um, and, and because of that, and, and again, fortuitous with the renaming of this panel, this is a perfect thing for this panel to, to drive and this commission to drive. Thank you, I'm available for questions. Well, we thank uh, this uh, panelist uh, for your uh, relevant and poignant and provocative testimony. So let me start. Uh, is there a information sharing group within the bio, biotech industry, an ISAC, an information sharing advisory group, council? I'm not aware of one dedicated, for example, in the biopharmaceutical manufacturing space. I think. I don't know all the ISACs off the top of my head. I know there's one in health, um, and there may be another one in some related area, but I don't know of one that's more focused on this particular industry. I mean, is there, may I ask turn my, to my colleague and friend, Jim, is there, is there, I mean, this is, one could argue this is a critical, this is critical infrastructure. Is there a means within the industry writ large uh, to uh, share information as it relates to uh, uh, cybersecurity threats? Yes, there, there is it connected a, with one of the there other is an organization yeah. of, of um, individuals who are on the manufacturing side okay. of biotechnology, and it's it's occurred to me, even before the hearing, that, um, that we ought to bring them in, um, to maybe on another panel, at least bring them into my office and chat about this with them. Well, I think uh, the panel takes a look at this as uh, a uh, w within uh, our economy at large, uh, but for obvious reasons, a cr critical infrastructure. And if you believe, as all of us do, that it is subject to daily digital attack, um, primarily from sovereign states, but you know uh, there may be competitors out there, there may be in some industrial espionage, the notion that there would be some information sharing uh, among those engaged in this kind of uh, research and, and manufacturing, it seemed to make a lot of sense. Um, you know, uh, Dr. Hudson, you were, I loved it. I think you said uh, integrity, availability, and confidentiality were the three cornerstones of uh, some of the recommendations that you made. You also said something very significant. You should be able, these companies should be able, I think you said uh, security designed from the outset of the enterprise. Would you elaborate that a little bit? I mean, my sense is particularly the small uh, biotech firms, they're focused. I mean, it's, it's R&D. There's an outcome they want to get to. And the notion that there's even finance available, let alone an inclination to be worried about security from the get-go, it's not anathema to, to them psychologically. They're just not paying a lot of attention to it. So I'd like you to elaborate that on for me. Yeah, and I think it makes a lot of sense for a company to be that way the R&D growth is, is pushed so hard on those companies and they have such a deep challenge in competitiveness to get products to market or to, uh, to have research that's in some way compelling to, to funders. The issue is that they uh, potentially also have an outmoded responsibility in terms of what they're capable of. And if that capability includes releasing public information or, or confidential information, or if that risk includes um, uh, manufacturing uh, uh, 
materials that are that are in some way risky or, or, or dangerous or in some way um, damaging the U.S.'s um, uh, perception of biotechnology. You know, that's an outmoded risk relative to sort of where the where the the, the small company is trying to to grow a new R and D capability. And so, for that reason, I, I think it it has to grow up from the ground up. And the same way we saw this in a lot of the internet industry as those were growing, that they, the final recognition of there may be someone who's interested in your data or in your company with malicious intent, um, that uh, it's not simply an academic environment, that it may have grown up from an academic environment where everyone was agreeing on sharing and all all the sharing partners sort of knew each other that we're in a much more um, sophisticated and advanced and uh, actually a more adversarial um, relationship now in the world of biotechnology. Do you see any encryption in that world of information sharing between uh, uh, parties? I mean, there's a low access. I mean, there's a a drive to, there's information sharing is at the heart of uh, much of this industry. Uh, and uh, do you see any encryption at all between parties or in, in developing in the supply chain as they as they share information? I think it's growing up in that area, um, but it was it was uh, a new capability. Right. The, the, the day the day started um, was born open, as, as you would say, um, and because of that, encryption had to be sort of taught. To, to the biotech industry and to um, the uh, genomics industry a, a, as well. Uh, and a lot of this has come from uh, the, uh, the commercialization and industrialization of, of these two fields of synthetic biology and genomics. Uh, John, uh, you talked about uh, the acquisition of information through cyber attack exfiltration but by also by acquisition. Interesting thought. Are you aware of any purchases by foreign countries or companies that have had to go through CFIUS review? Absolutely. And those rules, as you know, and uh, Governor, want, I, are I relatively want you to new. I that because I yeah. think it's really important. So, so I think it was, I think they were being implemented December of 2018, right. um, long waiting from Treasury regulations to put a speed bump, I, I would call them a speed bump, uh, into the approval process for companies that are having foreign investment from ex-US investors, not just China, but, oh. but all investors to yes. be reviewed by CFIUS. Um, and again, it's a balance, and, and I'm sure <laughs> Mr. Greenwood would, would, would believe this. You, know, you don't want to hold up an acquisition of a biotech by having it to go through a, a necessary burdensome regulatory environment um, when, when there's no problem there. But at the same time, you know, we are seeing products that have been funded by the government um, that have gone to auction out of bankruptcy that have ended up in the hands of Chinese biotechs. Um, they're free market when they want to be, uh, and 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 will certainly you know take advantage of that opportunity when the opportunity arises. Um, I haven't, I, I don't, don't quote me on the curves, but if you look at the investment, um, just traditional investment in Chinese investors into American biotech in the last 15 years, there's definitely a ramp up. So. Um, you know, and, and again, that's a good thing because that access to capital is important. That access to a very large market is important. We just need to be smart about it, and we need to have our eyes open and really understand what the intent is behind it and make sure those protections are in place. Um, you know, I, I think one of the other 
points on this is in, in kind of going back to what Dr. Hudson said in terms of data accumulation, you have the data amalgamators, whether it's Google or Facebook or whoever, or Amazon that's gathering data. If there was a way for citizen patients to take a stake in that data and actually have an ownership interest of some sort, I know Senator Warner's got legislation pending. There's a referendum in California that, that might create some sort of right of this and shift the paradigm such that um, such that people have a vested interest in the outcome of that innovation rather than simply it benefiting a private industry. There's a real chance there that you can turn things on their head. I think that technology to do so would also create a nice um, chain of custody, using a lawyer term, uh, for the data where you could perhaps see where it went, went awry and, and disappeared in the wrong hands. And that would enable you know, honest investment, honest foreign investment in biotech. If there's no malice to it, that's great. Their money spends as well. Well, thank you very much. Senator? Well, let me uh, join in thanking each of you for your excellent statements and the insights you've offered. Uh, and Mr. Kluge, let me, let me start with you. I, I, first of all, I really uh, couldn't uh, more emphatically agree with your recommendations. I think elevating ASPR and providing more organizational stature to ASPR to address the many, many challenges we have in bringing disparate elements together organizationally within the government just makes great sense. And I appreciated your comments on the importance of bipartisanship and leadership. The one thing you said that I, I, I probably just didn't quite fully uh, understand or interpret correctly is what you said about resources. Uh, I, I had the impression you said the resources really weren't that consequential a challenge. But I oftentimes quote our Asper, uh, who recognizes the contrast between conventional defense and how much we spend and the fact that we spend about half of an aircraft carrier on biodefense yes. and illustrates uh, through that, that uh, assertion uh, just the extraordinary contrast in public policy and in resources we've dedicated to the challenge. So did I misunderstand what you said about resources? Yes, or? and thank you okay. for allowing me to clear that before Dr. Cadillac, you know, called me on my cell phone <laughs> yelling at me. Uh, the core mission today of ASPR is underfunded, just as Dr. Cadillac and Dr. Lori before him and everybody else would say. There's no question about it. And I think the analogy to the aircraft carrier that, that Dr. Cadillac has testified many times before Congress and before this panel is exactly right. The amount of value that we're putting into addressing what I will call the traditional biodefense threat that arose out of the attack on you uh, and the passage of Project BioShield. Um, although BARDA and ASPR has made great strides over the last 15 years, it's still not where it needs to be. And I strongly echo Dr. Cadlick's position on that. What I was focused on is if you're going to assign ASPR, um, and I think you should, uh, per your, you know, it's the recommendation 24 in, in your panel um, says some leadership to take this. You don't recommend, you don't recommend ASPR, but, but I think that would be a good place, as it sounds like you do. The, the need for additional resources um, to provide leadership around data security probably are not anywhere close to what it's going to take to develop the medical countermeasures that Dr. Cadlick's talking about. That's the good news. And I want to make sure of that for a couple reasons. One, I think the, the, the core mission of ASPR to prepare the country against a chemical, biological, radiological, nuclear attack is requiring all the resources possible on that. If you're going to give ASPR the additional responsibility, as I think you should, to also protect our data of national security, um, I don't want that 
that Peter to Rob Paul uh, for, those, for that mission space. But I also don't think those resources are the same because unlike developing those medical countermeasures where those markets are limited, you have fragile biotechs that need that, need that market pool that was envisioned under Project BioShield to move forward. There's a lot of market pull in the data science and, 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 uh, and data monetization area. You just need to do that in a way that's secure. And I don't think that takes billions of dollars to do. I think that takes leadership. Thank you for that. Thank you for allowing me to clarify before Absolutely. I got in trouble. Thanks for the clarification. <laughs> uh, Dr. Hudson, I, I, just a question on industrial control systems. We've, we've used them in the country for many decades, and the security challenge of protecting them becomes exponentially more difficult when we use the computer technology we have today to manage them. We know that commercial systems are available that can help companies monitor and secure these ICS systems, but I think the question is, do you think we've got enough uh, capacity today to protect pathogen data and systems? And if not, what else would you do to ensure that we offer greater protection and security around them? So I think that many of these um, facilities, whether genomic or synthetic, biology are ultimately industrial control systems with a different output. Um, that output is, is ultimately biological output, but the, the systems that run that inside them are um, partially autonomous internet of things, connected devices that, that all work with each other to, to ultimately produce, uh, uh, produce a biological product. And as such, the risks that are inherent in each of those products propagate out um, throughout it. And that's been the problem in industrial control systems, and I think that's the problem in, in a lot of synthetic biology and, and biotechnology as well. Um, as to whether or not uh, uh, we have sufficient capabilities uh, nationwide to protect this coming from industry, I'm not 100% sure if, if we do have a capability that that's um, considerable enough, in large part because uh, I don't know that that we fundamentally understand the the risk surface there, and the potential for malicious um, action on these. I, I think understanding more of that space will uh, will allow industry to to compete in a, in uh, providing these solutions in a, in a more competitive way. Thank you. Dr. Lee, could I ask you to answer that question too? And then maybe just in a larger context, what are could you could you give us a better sense of the unique circumstances that face biopharmaceutical manufacturers as they as it pertains to cyber biosecurity? How how do they look at it and what should we be thinking about as we try to work in this public private partnership to assure greater greater security than we have today? Yeah, so on, on, on that uh, first question um, around industrial control systems, I, I think, you know, at, at the end of the day, a lot of it is about awareness and information sharing. And, and I think DHS has um, a cyber emergency response team, a CERT, an ICS CERT, that I think provides a, a basic framework for ensuring um, communication about concerns, threats. Um, I, I think if an ISAC was created, uh, that might be specialized in, in biopharmaceutical manufacturing. That would, uh, for example, that might also provide another avenue for communication and sharing of information. Um, I, I would say along those lines that I think when it comes to, and I'll transition to your second question through this, 
I think when I think about the industry, I think about you know very large companies that have resources to ensure that they have the best practices, they have the best defenses uh, to protect their assets, their manufacturing facilities, and so on. Um, but I think where there's an interesting challenge, and this is uh, going to echo a, a comment um, that was made earlier, I, I think the heart of innovation in this industry is really, I would argue, in the small businesses. Whether they're building new pieces of equipment or technology or assays that are used in manufacturing, or whether they're uh, actually trying to bring that next medicine to market. So whether they're a service provider or a vendor, or whether they're actually trying to innovate the new medicine, they're extremely resource limited. And so you can provide uh, guidance to them and say, you need to be paying attention to these risks and these threats. Um, but at the end of the day, for the people working on that team, and they have to prioritize what they're going to do, that may be a very difficult um, priority for them to establish. So somehow I feel more confident, and notwithstanding that comment I made about the Merck experience from 2017, where there were many companies globally that were impacted by that same uh, computer worm. Um, I, I feel like the resources that are available to the very large players um, gives them a better chance uh, to protect uh, their facilities and their assets. But I think the small companies, there, there's a real gap there about how to, how to help educate uh, how to provide the right frameworks. Uh, NIST has a cybersecurity framework that they um, uh, put out there in 2014. I think it was updated uh, last year in 2018. Provides a good uh, framework for helping organizations think about how to deal with um, cyber-related uh, threats. But uh, I, I think that's a, a segment of this uh, business sector that probably could use some help. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I already sent a message to my staff to talk about, get together and, and talk about how we can organize ourselves and our companies around this subject to the extent that we haven't done that sufficiently yet. Um, going back to the, the Merck case, um, could you, I may have known this and forgotten this, but um, was this a, this was a, not a Merck specific case as you just referenced, was, it, was this the WannaCry thing or was this, uh, was this a generalized malware, malware attack not so specified at Merck because it was a biopharmaceutical? Right. So my understanding is it wasn't targeting Merck in particular. It was uh, the NotPetya computer worm. Uh, it wasn't targeting any particular uh, business. And in fact, if I recall, it impacted many global businesses and had a significant impact. It just, I think, it in, in my circles, it, it raised a, a flag because that was the first time such a large uh, global entity that provides, in this case, vaccines, as well as many other important medicines, uh, they had to do a reset, in essence, in my words, um, in, in that my understanding is they took down manufacturing um, to get the situation mitigated and then brought manufacturing back up globally. And uh, as you can imagine, that has an impact on the supply of medicines. So this question is, is directed to all three or any three of the panelists. Um, and, and by no means am I asking this question to minimize what we've been talking about here, but just really to get a better understanding of it. Because as I was thinking about this, um, I was thinking that at, to when you think of some of the worst case scenarios that have been depicted, someone hacks into the computer system of a biopharmaceutical company and then uses that access to then hack in to the manufacturing process and maybe hack into the genomics of the, uh, the proteomics of the product, um, that's a lot of smart. Um, and I don't know how many 
people there are that would have the ability to do those things um, unless they were in a, a multidisciplinary team of bad guys. Um, so just help me understand um, uh, how you, why that is not even in itself pretty foolproof is way too strong a word, but you understand what I'm trying to get at is, is it's, and then the second part of that is if I'm, if I'm a, a bad guy who wants to, you know, hurt the U.S. economy or I want to hurt, harm as many people as possible, would I go into Genentech's system and change the structure of Herceptin that it's going to be manufacturing and hope that I do it in a way that bypasses the quality, the QA, and and gets injected into patients and doesn't cure their cancer or makes them. It's it's a pretty it's a pretty good number of steps, and is that I mean you you could you know throw a hand grenade at a refinery and do a lot more damage. So help me out. They're looking at me for to start, so I'll, <laughs> so I'll start. Uh, I I think that's that's a really important question because I, I I think about it as you know there's a very high profile dramatic kind of uh, attack, and I think it is very hard uh, to accomplish that because of how systems are protected again, at least at the very large companies, how they control their processes, uh, and and trying to in your example navigate all of those different. Um, Traverse those sort of uh, those gaps is is would be very non-trivial. That said, uh, you know I mentioned in my remarks uh, in in passing, uh, there's also the more subtle uh, attacks that can have an impact. So, uh, so we talked about industrial control systems. So if, if one could uh, target an industrial control system that's uh, controlling a process in such a way, not that the process fails but that every batch that, in, in your example, that Genentech makes is just out of specification, has to be thrown away. Oh, and that just continually happens. I, I think that's, uh, that's an economic impact uh, to and that I would organization. I see that as, excuse me, as an industrial sabotage effort, right? more so than I would see it as some sort of um, uh, effort to make sick or harm large numbers of people. Right, in, indeed. And, and I think your, your comment about you know, throwing a grenade in is probably a much more effective way, uh, is probably an accurate statement. But I think there are other places, not within that digital thread of, of how the data is being controlled and the processes are being controlled. If you just focus on something like a master cell bank that's used to make all of the lots of product uh, for the life of that product, if you can influence or control or destroy that master cell bank, you basically take that entire product and process off the market. Uh, and, and so I think there may be ways that don't require quite as many steps that people have talked about or thought about that um, might require particular attention. And if I may, I, and, and, and Asper is thinking about these issues, so supply chain security, you know, take it off of Herceptin and put it at saline. Um, so, you know, is the saline supply water? Right? Uh, is that secure? And I think we saw with the hurricane hitting Puerto Rico and taking down uh, a big part of the saline supply for injection for cancer therapies. The big bags are made in North Carolina, the smaller bags are made in Puerto Rico, um, but it compromised the whole supply chain. So it's great if you can't get your cancer drug because it can't be mixed with the saline to inject it. Um, similarly, you know, if you look at Asper's core mission today, and I know they're looking at this issue, it's actually in the BAA that I mentioned. Um, 
the, the need for saline during a pandemic. You know, we don't need to wait for a terrorist event. Um, a lot of people who die from flu die from dehydration. Um, if there's no saline because the saline facility has been compromised by a hurricane or by a terrorist or by a state actor, um, you know, those are the supply chain vulnerabilities that I think all of this data crunching needs to come up with. Um, and I think there's redundancies you can build in. There's working with industry partners, the, make certain, the maker of those critical products that, that would protect us in that such an event. Um, and some of that's beginning, but we're, we're behind. Um, behind where we need to be. I think there are some interesting s security assumptions that we, we have about um, biological attack that have that have changed recently, and I think that ha that cybersecurity has changed. When we uh, imagined a uh, a bio threat actor working before, we imagined a, potentially a lab um, with materials going in and materials coming out, and something that could be monitored. Um, if we're talking about industrial takeover, that's that's different in a large number of ways. While it requires a large amount of sophistication, the tools and techniques in cybersecurity and in uh, uh, weapons of, of malware are, suffi are sufficiently lower on the, the ladder of, of uh, required experience. And as such, it's in some ways, it requires a large multidisciplinary knowledge of how biological systems work and how industrial systems work. But in other ways, it's actually lowered the bar. And uh, going to the, to the point of throwing a, a grenade, um, there's, there's something that's particularly um, a particular security assumption in that, which is that you don't mind someone knowing that you did it. That isn't the case with cybersecurity. Most issues in cybersecurity fall around um, attribution or the ability to have knowledge that you're you're doing it. And in that way, um, from an, from the perspective of looking at an adversary, um, the an adversary who wants to keep their intentions unknown um, ha has a, a more benefit in investing in. Uh, in cybersecurity attacks and in, in going after cybersecurity vulnerabilities. And I think that's probably the big difference there uh, between a, a straightforward attack, which we could call a failure of a physical system, um, and a cybersecurity attack, which is a failure of the, the computational system that underlies it. This will be my last question. So um, I often, um, in speeches that I make and so forth say, um, and this I don't think is too terribly hyperbolic, that there isn't a disease um, that we won't be able to cure uh, in this world um, based on the, the incredibly new tools we have of gene editing, CRISPR-Cas9, and, and cell therapy, and immunotherapy, and so forth. So the, the it's never been a more promising time for patients to think that, and, and I think that's true. I think there's no scientific, theoretical scientific reason why we can't figure out how to do all of this stuff. Um, but it does it does take us down the road, like every other potentially dual-use um, uh, thing, um, that you can do a lot of terrible things with that same very, that very same technology. And so um, it's just not in the nature of humanity to say, well, let's just not go down that road then, you know, let's not save all those babies from horrible suffering and all those people from diseases and so forth. Um, so 
uh, I want to get a sense from you. Um, some of this can be um, uh, protected. Some of the, 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 the dual use, the, the, the nefarious uses, can be protected by cybersecurity. And it has been said that's not, that's not the hardest thing in the world to do. It takes leadership. It takes diligence. It takes keeping up with the science and so forth. But we can go a long, long, long way to protect a lot of this information. But science, cybersecurity isn't, isn't going to be the cure-all, is it? I mean, there are still questions to be answered about the ease with which people can now get um, the ability to do gene editing in their garages and the availability of materials and equipment and um, the ease of understanding how to, um, you know, make some, to synthesize some really awful stuff. So I just want to get a sense from you. When we get, when we get the cybersecurity thing, you know, nailed down perfectly um, because Cadillac stays there for eternity. Um, uh, you know, what, what are the other things that, that we need to do uh, to protect some of these, um, you know, worst case scenarios? You're, you're exactly right. I mean, my, my first answer, and, and you've said this, so I don't mean to repeat it, is, you know, take the low-hanging fruit off the table. Take, take the hard stuff that can be fixed without a lot of money, just leadership, and at least fix that, and that will go a long way to solving the problem. Are you going to stop bad guys from doing bad things with new tools? Of course not. You know, and that comes to the intelligence community, and that comes to our, our everything else, the other apparatus of government that prevents that. But when it comes to those innovative tools, um, you know, CRISPR-Cas9 or, or CRISPR as a whole, you know, I would look to where those next levels of vulnerability are. DARPA is working on anti-CRISPR countermeasures, for example. If there was a gene gun or a malicious tool, how do you neutralize that? Not curing cancer. Um, the, the ag sector, again, I think is very vulnerable to that because that's not as complicated. Messing with a human isn't as complicated as messing with a plant or is more complicated. So, you know, I think having that <laughs> that vision, you know, again, the, the the lack of imagination about thinking about what's there and trying to stay ahead of it is the most important thing. Um, that takes innovation. That takes American success. Um, there's a term I've heard on, um, Senator Warner use called entrepreneurial warfare, which I love. Um, we can't outspend the Chinese, their state government, but we're, we're capitalists, they're communists, we can beat them. So everything that we can do to foster entrepreneurial warfare, I think, is what we should be doing. I think starting with you, Dr. Lee, following up on um, some of your discussion of what the cyber threat would be, you, you talked about you know, vaccines being manipulated and maybe uh, rendered and you know, ineffective, this kind of thing. Um, and the, uh, you also mentioned just sort of medical countermeasures. And I guess I want to address sort of um, whether there's been thinking and planning, um, and I know there has been, but I guess the extent of thinking and planning of use of cyber tools for disruption purposes um, to disrupt the response. So you talked about maybe, you know, you'd have medical countermeasures in place, but they would have been impaired somehow um, previously. What about just the disruption of the dissemination of those countermeasures? I mean, I know, I remember learning at Bob Cadlick's knee about sort of, you know, you have X number of days and then the mortality rate starts and, you know, it gets, it increases, increases. And so those first day, a day or two are so key. And I know there's been a lot of thinking about whether if we had, especially a state actor launching a terrorist attack or some kind of just, you know, even conventional military attack and at the same time taking down the energy grid for purposes of disruption. We saw that they, they, there were cyber attacks in Georgia back in 2008. 
uh, for that very reason to impair the response. Um, do you know whether there's thoughts been given, and anybody can address this, sort of about that as it relates to the response to a biological uh, attack and whether, especially in terms of countermeasures, thoughts sort of how to insulate ourselves against that? Well, I, I would say I'm going to defer to my colleagues or others in the room who may have more specific knowledge. I, I'm not in the circles where I have been involved in those particular kinds of conversations. I would hope, certainly, that um, that those considerations are being factored in. I, I think you know, the ability to distribute um, medical countermeasures, for example, or to respond, um, uh, you know, your ability to respond uh, is uh, something that uh, has to be taken as a paramount um, consideration. Uh, you can stockpile medicines in a national strategic stockpile, but if you can't get them to where they're needed, um, it's not going to do you a lot of good. Yeah, you so, can think of myriad ways where exactly. cyber means that could be impaired. That's right. So I, I think it's important as we think about not only cyber impacts on how to make medicines, how to ensure their quality and their safety and their availability in times of need. Um, I, I think when you think about availability, it goes beyond just the drug product manufacturers themselves, and it goes to the entire supporting infrastructure, the providers, uh, the ability to distribute those medicines, transportation systems, cold chain delivery systems, et cetera. I haven't been involved in specific discussions along those lines, but um, I certainly hope that those conversations are happening. So I think a lot of these, um, the scenario around that is uh, particularly interesting because it's uh, a failure of of trust, and we trust these facility or these capabilities to be there when we need them. We we trust for vaccines to be out. the The Merck case, as as well as we understand it, is has to do with their accounting system actually getting hit and. Uh, that, that that causing severe damage to their infrastructure that that forced them to then uh, hit up the CDC for replacement Cardacil. Um, and that happened in the course of, of normal business, um, in, in the course of uh, uh, standard interactions with within the accounting system. And as a result, this trusted capability that vaccine would be there when we needed it um, got hit, and this wasn't this wasn't an attack uh, on Merck, and it wasn't an attack on the vaccine. But it points to a to an issue that there are trusted capabilities um, within the biotech industry that we rely on, and that trust is a finite resource. And uh, the attack on that trust is probably the most uh, likely scenario. The creation of uh, some worst case scenario situation is, is, is the unlikelier event, but the erosion of trust in fundamental capabilities related to, to health or to, to industry, um, that, that is a very likely scenario and something that uh, effort needs to be worked on to make sure that that, that doesn't happen. Okay, well said. Um, and then I guess related, I wanted to ask about information sharing a little bit. I've had occasion um, to actually represent a couple different companies who've had to deal with um, cyber attacks uh, focused on their products. And um, it's impressed me how when we did sort of connect them with the intelligence community, um, that they were able to get some really valuable information about what 
the subtleties of those attacks are or could be, and so how to insulate and protect themselves, you know, against those attacks. In intelligence community as opposed to DHS, and um, do you have a sense in any of you, do you have a sense of whether, uh, you know, current, you know, current information about the threat, about specific intentions of Chinese and other bad actors overseas, the extent to which that's actually getting to um, industry, so the industry can actually, you know, take steps to counter those specific threats. Because I think, as one of you pointed out, it's changing every day, and the bad actors are thinking of new ways of getting in every day. Um, and I, I worry that that's, you know, with classification and sensitive sources and methods, it's a, it's a tough one. Um, and I, I I've gotten, uh -oh, we're being reported on. Um, Kofi Roberts. Uh, that uh, I get the sense that it's it's there's a lag time there. Do you, any of you have a perspective on that? And if if so, if that is in fact that, that impression is accurate, do you have any thoughts about how to try to better the situation? I, I can't comment directly on industry. My sense is that it lags, as your sense sounds like. Um, I know Governor Ridge had mentioned universities and university IP. Um, I can testify that that's lagging. Uh, that, that the universities are very slow to react in terms of um, actual espionage or um, somewhat useful, you know, what, what we've come to learn in the, the modern news of the useful idiot. Um, that, that's happening a lot on, on university campuses where professors are getting invited for these great trips to Shanghai to present their technology and stay in the greatest hotels and, you know, have the greatest restaurants. And um, th that's happening every day, and there's a real – I've seen it in the people that we've reached out to and talked to, recalcitrance among um, academics and others to, to shut down that sharing because the nature of academia is you want to publish, you want to share, you want to collaborate. Um, it reminded me when I, I was actually in the Air Force in the late 90s when the Laurel scandal surfaced. Um, with satellite technology, and it was very—it's very analogous to what was happening then, because I was working for the basic research operations of the Air Force, and they tried to shut down our scientists, and they cried and said, "You can't shut down academic freedom and sharing." You know, that's basic research; that's fine. But applied in advance, sure you can. I mean, th those are those are things we need to be worried about. And I think, um, uh, from what I can see, I have witnessed that universities um, are not on their A game when it comes to issues you're concerned about. I can't speak to industry. Right, lag time in reacting or lag time in learning about Both. Both. Our advisory panel, please. Thank you. Um, this has been a really, really informative, interesting discussion. Um, and I'm grateful to the, the questions that you've been asking and the answers that you've been giving about how to safeguard the bioeconomy. And there, is uh, you know a lot of useful information that you've given. I think um, talking about um, reaching out to small companies who may not have the information that they need to safeguard uh, their processes, but also returning to what John just said um, about um, universities uh, <laughs> and, and 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 others, um, where there are certain vulnerabilities that we can identify. Um, the attention being paid to safeguarding the bioeconomy also relates to a comment that was made earlier about protecting without limiting its success. Mm -hmm. And the tendency that I think we see here frequently in this country is that when there is an exposure of vulnerability that we overreact and try to clamp down in a way that can limit innovation, that can limit information sharing that is done for benevolent purposes because we're concerned about its sharing for other purposes. 
Um, in order to try to head off any overreaction, such as um, we've seen in the past, I think the select agent program in some aspects represents overreaction, and mm -hmm. I take a teeny bit of responsibility for that. But, but what would you see in order to try and block an overreaction? What would you see as an overreaction that would limit um, the success of, of the, uh, the bioeconomy, and, and particularly in this country, our ability to innovate? So I think data sharing, um, in large part, has led to the explosion of biotechnology. It, it's made this possible. It's made uh, a lot of the techniques and technologies that have exploded over the last 10 years and started to change how biotech works has, has come out of <laughs> the sharing of data. Um, there are a number of... Uh, uh, capabilities uh, that that grew directly out of that, like the Human Genome Project, really came out of a major data sharing effort. And I think anything that limits that is going to create problems, and is going to create uh, uh, a reduction in in industrial competitiveness and a reduction in in how this technology in this field grows. Uh, and so I think we have to be very cautious against limiting data sharing um, in large part and instead focus on uh, make, making sure that we authenticate the sharing that's actually happening, that, that the authentication is, is actually one of the most crucial parts of that. Uh, yeah, I don't think I'm answering your question directly because I'm not saying where the words where too much is, but I completely echo um, Dr. Hudson's point that the technology related to Darren, enabling technology to enable uh, data sharing among trusted parties is where it's at. That, that's that's what we need to strive for because that's how you're going to enable innovation and security at the same time. And again, if if you have a if you have a method that's going to show that hey, that may have ended up in Shanghai, and that's just fine because that's a trusted agent on the other side who's doing great things and a partner. That's good. So that's where the innovation, the data science innovation, needs to occur in order to enable this. Um, I, I guess I would I would have a little bit of a word of caution not to conflate. Um, I won't I won't name any names, but certain rhetoric around China, um, whether it's involving trade wars or other things, with this particular issue, because um, it's very different in my mind. So the the, the cybersecurity or security threat. You know, the, the Obama administration was looking at that as well. This isn't a Trump initiative, and this isn't something that's tied to any sort of trade trade issue, in my view. Um, so, it, 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 and unfortunately, I think when they're conflated, it undermines the effectiveness of the message. This can't just be blown off as some headline. It's important. That's my word of caution on kind of not going far enough. It's real. Okay, any comments? I'll just say, I mean, I think this really, it, it gets to, the complexity of the problem. On the one hand, you, you want to have that openness is certainly in the research space to promote discovery and innovation that has driven this country forward uh, for many decades. Um, but at the same time, there are threats, there's realities of, of competitiveness, and we have to secure ourselves. And how do you how do you have the conversations so that there's enough awareness by all the stakeholder groups? Academia, I would agree, is, is not um, uh, doing what it needs to do in general. Um, how do you have those conversations without disclosing too much information that's inappropriate, but yet providing enough context so that people can internalize and understand 
what the risks and the and the threats are, and and that's that's the real challenge. Anything else from my colleagues, Mr. Libby? Thank you all. Uh, thanks for the presentations. Um, you've made a very good case that there's a serious uh, threat here. Um, you've talked about state actors being involved. I wonder if you've come across any ideas for how to stop or deter the state actors, since, as I think has been pointed out, it's very hard to be successful in securing ourselves 100% of the time. So I'd welcome any ideas on stopping or deterring. You can give your answers in English or Mandarin, whichever you <laughs> wish. No. <laughs> There's too much at stake. I don't know. I don't know how you stop it. The parties are parties are differently aligned. I don't know. I think, in a way, promoting cybersecurity, what you could call hygiene. Um, it, it, in a way, levels up the bar for anyone involved in, in theft. If you don't make it easy <laughs> and don't make cybersecurity a, um, an easy problem for the adversary, uh, you, you at least force them to exert resources and, and make a critical um, go at it. Uh, that demands uh, a lot of what we saw in the development of security around the internet was was not a sophisticated cybersecurity policy, but really the application and um, uh, consistent uses of systems and protocols. So having statements and protocols and knowing exactly what it what it takes to solve, I think I think that that actually would probably go a long way to to deterring. Um, uh, cyber cybersecurity incidents from from state level actors. I, I think the you know the the challenge uh, is that it, it's very hard to say this is how we're going to win. Uh, I, I think that's a, a very difficult thing to imagine what steps you would have to take. I, I would say though that um, we do have a, a tremendous amount of creativity and innovation in this country, and I think if we bring the right people together we can begin to address some of the issues if we can be thoughtful and strategic. I think part of the concerns that we're seeing is really that there seems to be a national strategy by other nations. And it's not clear to me that we have that sort of coordination and national strategy. There's a lot of relevant and important agencies involved in, in this general space. I think developing a strategy and then being able to execute on that will be a first important step but it's not going to solve the problem, I would argue, because the pace of innovation is so fast that uh, it, there has to be sort of, in my opinion, an ongoing kind of evaluation of where we are, where the threats are, how things are changing um, to try to be competitive and protect ourselves. And, and if I may, you, you did trigger one thought. So um, early 80s, it was the Japanese threat we were concerned about, right, um, in micro microelectronics and superconduct semiconductors. Bobby Ray Inman started MCC in Austin, Texas, and out of that grew Semitech, and out of that grew Dell Computers, and you know we we won that threat I think pretty pretty well at the end of the day. Um, so I you know we would I would equate this challenge again going back to entrepreneurial warfare and economic challenge is the easiest way to defeat it is through economics, like we did with Japan. Well, we'd certainly like to thank this one quick 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 quick. We'd like to thank me Just for. Closing my remarks and deferring over to Jim Greenwood. <laughs> <laughs>
I thought it was my turn to thank the panel. Well, yeah, it's okay, whatever. Uh, just, just make yourself so happy. I, uh, Mr. Libby's question, um, and I know this isn't necessary in your areas of expertise, but it, it, when it comes to a state actor, isn't half the problem attribution just knowing? I mean, it's one thing to take a retaliatory measure of some kind, as opposed to a defensive measure, but I mean, half the game for the for the state actor is being yeah. able to not be detected and identified, right? I think that's, that's fair. To your point, yeah. yeah, which is different than throwing the grenade. Yeah, I would I would agree with that point. Can I? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. I'll, thank you very much. Uh, we do want to thank you. You know, it's interesting uh, that you've uh, made it very clear to all of us that um, it's a risk that has to be managed aggressively. It's not a risk that can ever be eliminated. I mean, the digital sun's never going to set. Actually, it's the sun's just going to get hotter and hotter, and we know that. And we also know that it's a lot easier to play offense than it is defense, and we know that. Uh, personal digital hygiene is that probably the the avenue of access that is grossly underestimated, but the primary access of whether it's a nation state or just the the hacker, the the criminal organization. So I think you. You, your, your testimony has been uh, very, very helpful. And as we continue to explore this issue, we need to, and what we're trying to explain to you and to the public, to Congress, that it, but it's a serious risk. And it has to be managed more aggressively than it's being managed now. You add the very interesting perspectives throughout. And uh, we were grateful for your participation and continued engagement with the Bipartisan Commission and with our decision makers on this very critical issue. Thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to have uh, take a break now until uh, 1245, 1250. Uh, lunch, I presume, is out as it normally is being uh, provided. Uh, there's a, a video, uh, not that you be sitting totally enraptured by a discussion with members of the panel, um, but it is a video from our study panel on biodefense. It's a discussion of the panel's graphic novel, Germ Warfare, a very graphic history. I hope you'll find it interesting and informative, and we'll reconvene about uh, 1245. Thank you very much.
Yes, miss. Good morning. It seems to me that this issue interlocks with the broader big picture issue of what keeps an animal healthy and happy. The social, getting enough sleep, getting proper nutrition, proper health care. I used to be a zoo docent. I saw when you give an animal the correct basic care, it lives long. I see a lot of Americans who don't get correct basic care. They don't do so well, and they are more vulnerable to infection in a way that a well-cared-for animal is not. So how does your initiative interlock with that broader complex policy of keeping us all in that good space? Thanks. Um, thank you for that question. I, you know, it's, it's a very valid question. You're talking about uh, the environment in which a virus attacks anything and anybody. And, and good public health practice, good health care practice uh, allows for exactly what you're saying. Um, it's, a broad, it's a broad issue. It is, it, we have to look and see what's happening right now in the world. Um, we have some of the worst outbreaks in places where there is insufficient money because of poverty, uh, insufficient public health infrastructure, infrastructure uh, or insufficient health care, and so forth. And so what do we see? We see more people getting sick there. Um, any policy that we take in terms of addressing biological warfare, bioterrorism, and naturally occurring diseases has to take into account good nutrition, public health infrastructure, access to health care, vaccines, as Max brought up, access to uh, antibiotics, fresh water, all, all of that. Uh, if we don't do that, we are creating additional vulnerabilities that we don't actually need to have be there, you know, at all. Hello. Uh, so I want to first say thank you to everyone on the panel for being here today. And um, I also want to say Max Brooks. I, uh, so the day after I read your book, World War Z, I looked into Masters of Public Health Programs in Epidemiology. So I was inspired to go into that field. Um, I absolutely love it. I don't exactly do epi stuff, data analyst, but still, uh, thank you. Uh, anyway, so I had a question kind of like in regards to, so you know within the United States we have these wide open fields of like agriculture where we're you know, growing plants and we're raising cattle. Um, and so I previously had taken a plant pathology class and they did say it is a concern like bioterrorism because we have these wide open fields. And so I was wondering like how much of a concern is that for this panel, and if so, is there a way like that we can like prepare for kind of like the worst case scenario for that? Um, just curious. <laughs> well, let, me, let me just give you a, a quick short answer, and then we'll dig into the experts about this. Whenever you hear an attack on regulations, this is very, oh, we're over-regulated, there's regulation. There's a reason we have regulation. There's a reason we have the Food and Drug Administration. There's a reason we have a Department of Agriculture. All of you would be a lot richer if we didn't have to pay for those things, but we'd all be dead. <laughs> the reason we have that is so we can check and we can monitor. And one of the things the panel is doing is trying to open communications between all these departments. So if a virus does show up, it can go, say, to CDC and then to the Army at USAMRID, and they can get, oh, wait a minute, there's a genetic footprint on this that doesn't match a known strain. So that's why we have regulations. Um, yes, 
Agro-terrorism, agro-agricultural warfare is a huge, huge uh, concern to us. Uh, there are things that are termed blast. There's wheat blast and soy blast, and the reason they use that term, I mean, other than uh, the scientific reason, uh, is because uh, the introduction of something like that will just blast all the way through our, our uh, crops. Um, they could decimate our economy. The agriculture is such a huge part of our, uh, of our economy. Uh, and once started, we, we can't necessarily just stop it. Um, conveniently, when, when uh, human beings get sick, yes, we, we can pass you know, certain diseases on. Um, but there's an incubation period. There's some you know, stuff going on there, except for in World War Z. But uh, with agricultural threats, it starts one place and it and it flies uh, through. So it's a it's a huge um, concern for us as well. Is anybody here of Irish descent? You're right. Most of you are here because of that, because there was a blight, and that's another issue. So so it's not it's not science fiction. I mean, it, we literally have seen these disasters throughout history when a blight has come through and wiped out our food source. Thank you for uh, coming, you three. I uh, appreciate your information. Uh, just wanted to ask is, do all viruses have the capability of being weaponizable? And if so, is there a virus that is a little bit harder in your experience to mitigate against, uh, such as Ebola? Uh, I know that was a big scare uh, not too long ago, and then it just it went dark, like nothing came from it afterwards. But I was curious what would be the worst uh, virus that could be uh, that our nation could face that would be a trouble to contain. So yes, uh, you know, technically all viruses, all bacteria for that matter, could be weaponized. Um, but you know, you can see certain certain diseases don't affect us as much as other diseases. You know, the worst case scenario now is a genetically engineered organism. Um, but you know, I say now and would also call your attention to the fact that the Soviets, when they were, you know, big into their biological weapons program uh, back in the 70s, they experimented with inserting Ebola into influenza because we get sick with influenza much easier than we get sick with uh, or infected with uh, Ebola. Um, now, they didn't go on to do much more with that, uh, so we hear, um, but that, that I think is the, is the biggest concern. Um, at the same time, you know, we're talking a lot about intentional stuff and that, you know, this is germ warfare. Um, pandemic influenza uh, can be hugely, horribly devastating and terrible. Um, Mother Nature uh, modifies uh, its own uh, vac uh, vaccines, it, its own uh, viruses, and if we got a mutation that was truly, truly beyond, um, it would fly through the world. It would kill millions. So both. So you're, so you're saying that it would be sort of like a um, a surprise inside a package, if you will. If someone wanted to put another virus or uh, genetically modify it and put it within influenza, it could be. It would be, be. more of an issue. It would be. You know, um, and it depends on how the disease presents. Uh, if everybody's walking in, I mean, as it is, you guys know how many diseases are described by um, with symptoms that are flu-like symptoms, you know. But if you're if you're going into a hospital or you know to a laboratory and they and they're testing in that kind of scenario, they may test and find influenza before they find 
the Ebola stuck inside the influenza. Yeah, and, and that's a really good point because, you know, younger people don't understand this, but anybody my age understands that we lived through the great modern plague of AIDS. And we know that for 10 years, nobody knew that it was AIDS. Everybody was dying of pneumonia. I mean, I think what to, to this day, Liberace officially died of, yeah, died of pneumonia. Uh, and this is where science crosses with the social, and this is where you guys come in, is that something like Ebola is so scary and it's so quick that it provokes a social reaction. Oh my God, Ebola, quick, send in the, we sent the army to West Africa, that's how much we cared. So imagine you're in West Africa dying of AIDS as an army convoy races by you to go take care of the Ebola. You know, that's what's happening over there. People dying of malaria, and they're like, quick, I'm dying. They're like, do you have Ebola? No, I have a malaria. Wait. And so we need to understand there's a social element to every plague because one of the great, we, just, we didn't wipe out AIDS in this country, but we won the war on AIDS, not with science, but with social, social justice. We all came, it was with education. We came together and we realized this is what we have to do, not to allow it to spread. There still isn't a cure for AIDS. There's no vaccine, but we're keeping it at bay because of education. Thank you guys. Hi. Um, thanks for coming doing this panel. I appreciate it. Um, my name is Chris Daly. When I'm not dressed like a space Nazi, I work on uh, with a company called Synertex on a product called the Chemical and Biological Integration Platform. Um, it's just what it sounds like. There's a lot of like epi and social tools and stuff, a lot of big data and machine learning stuff behind that. One of the uh, struggles we run into over and over um, is that it's difficult to get timely and accurate case counts of one disease or another in specific regions. So if you want to know like what the risk of, I, I don't know, chikungunya or whatever in central India is, you won't have numbers from that area. Uh, like the most recent numbers you'll have will be from like 1987 or something like that. And like ministries of health from different countries will put out case count information for some of the big name diseases, but they're usually like time late by like a month or something like that, or they're highly aggregated, so they're listed on like a national scale as opposed to like a regional scale. Uh, some of them put out data in PDF format, which is about as useful as a clay tablet from a data science perspective in terms of like data uh, propagation and things like that. Um, so data availability and consistency is a huge problem uh, from the technical side. Do you see any research or activism um, present right now that you think could help alleviate that in the relatively near future? Well, I can tell you that uh, the government is certainly taking this issue very, very seriously. However, I think we sort of suffer from um, uh, 100, 200, 300 different methods and ways of reporting with all different kinds of data streams going in all different directions. Um, it needs to, and it's trying to, figure out how to gather that information uh, and analyze it you know, appropriately. Uh, you're absolutely right. The delay in uh, in re reporting or knowing what we're looking at is is a big issue too. Um, frankly, if we're waiting around until people are getting sick and going to the hospital or calling 911, uh, and then saying, "Oh, look, this person has a has a truly terrible disease that you know looks unusual," um, if we've gotten all the way to that point, it it will be too late. So many other people will be able to, and then we'll be stuck in an in, uh, in emergency situation trying to out, uh, contain an outbreak um, without the data 
having gotten the data in the first place, in the middle of that situation, too, is not the time to be trying to gather data. So, uh, you know, people are trying. Industry is trying, too. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, hi. Uh, my question is kind of about willful misinformation. So my, my grandfather was struck with polio um, and spent time in an iron lung. He was crippled. I never knew him when he wasn't crippled. Um, but it seems that, you know, at the time that we as a country kind of experienced all of those diseases, there was a massive public buy-in into vaccines, into combating these things. But now that doesn't seem to be the case that there is kind of a blanket public buy-in. And now I have family members who are willfully ignorant, if that makes sense, regarding vaccines and things like that. So I know like the, 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 one of the most important things to combat this sort of thing is education, but what do you do about people who won't be educated and who have an intrinsic mistrust of the public health system and the government? You, you know, you, you, when it comes to education, you have to look at it sort of the way you look at counterinsurgency. It's like you're never going to convert the Taliban, but there are, there are people in a village who could go either way. And those are the people that you have to reach out to. You have to reach out to the people who are open to being educated, but just don't have the education. I mean, there are always going to be people, no matter what you say, no matter what you do, they're going to be like, oh, no, oh, no, 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 I, I vaccines, Pfft. hey, hey. There's a woman named Jenny McCarthy, and she, and she used to take her clothes off for a living, so I trust her. And you're never going to convert those people. These are the flat earthers. But the people who are like, God, I really, I don't know what to believe. You go, okay, this is a start. Because you're right, and this is the problem. We're victims of our own success. Because if I, when I was a little boy, had said, I don't want to get vaccine, vaccinated, my grandmother smacked me in the back of the head. But... We're losing the, the living memory right now. We're losing those people who remembered it. The, the man who taught me how to write, my mentor was a guy, he is a guy named Alan Alda. He was on a show named, called MASH. And I remember we used to all vacation together at this one place, and, and in the 80s, they got in a masseuse. It was a very big deal. And my mother was like, Alan, you must go get a massage. And Alan's like, I don't get massages. My mother's like, Alan, why? And he goes, because it reminds me too much of the physical therapy I had when I had polio. My mentor had polio. But guys like Alan are, are getting rarer and rarer. So the less of the people we have, the more we need this. Um, with genetic uh, uh, disease and stuff that you can, I can make in my basement, how do you separate the ones from, these machines have actual use for crop strains or for this, that. They can also be used to make disease. How do you fight who gets what and how you regulate, oh, no, you can't buy it because you're going to make a disease. You can buy it. You're going to make a plant protein. How would you fight something like that? Badly. <laughs> Currently, we don't, it's, it's too hard to get a hold of. It's extremely difficult. There's a whole category of stuff called dual use, um, some of which can be made, you know, used to make vaccine, and some of which cannot. Um, it's it's a, it's a huge challenge. We haven't figured it out yet. Ken? Yeah, and just I was going to make the point that you see that problem in this area, but you see it across the spectrum. You know, I've spent you know 20 years in the Justice Department. So, for instance, there's a little gizmo. I forgot what it's called. That can be used either in a radiation machine to for for medical treatment but also can be used like in an oscillator or something like that for a nuclear weapon. 
And these were shipped to Pakistan, and that was against the law. That was a dual use, of course, you know, put to the right use. Amen. We encourage it. We want people in Pakistan to be healthy. Put to the wrong use, you get in the wrong hands and can be result in a nuclear weapon. It's a really tough issue across the board, and it's one that we just haven't wrestled the ground, not even close. Good point. Thank you. So it's something you never hear about in the media. You always hear about a breakout in one country. So as herd immunity declines in this country because misinformation, we don't trust any of our institutions, we aren't even sure about democracy anymore, uh, how do, is it possible to have an outbreak of the measles and an outbreak of the mumps or in, at the same time? How likely is that? It's, it's very likely. I, you know, it's a question, it's a question of, it's not just a question of reporting, it's also a question of what hits the media. So uh, things are going on all the time, unfortunately, here in the United States, all the time. Uh, we're making a big deal out of measles because measles had been so unusual in terms of presentation. Uh, now, now, you know, it's front and center in the, uh, in the press, um, but other things are going on all the time, constantly. And, you know, there, there's another aspect of germ warfare, which you have to remember is it's information warfare as well. You know, we're starting to get reports that a lot of the anti-vaxxer information online is pushed by the Russians. Yeah. We're starting to understand that the Russians are starting to put bots on medical websites that are not even being anti-vaxxer. They're just putting a debate out there. So they literally will have two different bots arguing over the validity of vaccines. So when people go online, they go, oh, I didn't even know this was debatable. They're trying to sow doubt. So they don't have to hit us with a germ bomb. They can just hit us with a lie bomb. And that will be enough to let a vaccine spread. I mean, sorry, not a vaccine, to let a germ spread and to roll back vaccines. Because let's remember, a lot of our enemy state competitors, Russia, China, Iran, they may not want to destroy us. They just want us off the world stage. And what's the best way to have us looking in instead of looking out is having to deal with a pandemic right here at home. Dr. George, you were talking about uh, the Soviet bio program back in the 70s. And I see a lot of great names up there on your, your panel. And I was wondering, why isn't Ken Alabeck on there? I mean, he's you know, the father of their program, and he's here and accessible. You know, did you guys not want to approach him, or is he just not interested anymore? Well, so Ken is doing his own thing. Uh, Ken is certainly uh, a force to be reckoned with all by his, himself. Um, Ken, uh, but you know, Ken, Ken's uh, experience is very unique, and uh, we've certainly drawn upon his, his, his experiences and his information and, and what he has had to say. Uh, the other thing about Ken, though, is that he disappears every once in a while, and we can't find him anywhere and wonder where he's going. Um, but he's, he's one of our, you know, one of our world uh, experts, and, and certainly we, we, we've drawn upon his information. Hi there. So, so on the, uh, the subject of like measles, I've uh, just recently uh, like seen some videos on it and seen that uh, you know it was basically eradicated for the most part. There was like small you know pockets in like Amish and Jewish communities, but on the subject of like diseases on viruses, uh, like smallpox, I am aware there's only like what like the CDC has this uh, thing of smallpox. Uh, is there an inherent danger? 
in actually eradicating these diseases to the point where like only like one or two facilities have them in case, because I heard something, I think it was like Dartmouth, uh, they were cleaning, it was a college, they were cleaning out a an old closet and found a vial that marked smallpox. So it doesn't necessarily have to be an attack, it just be something like that and you have an outbreak again. And you know, you only got like a couple of facilities that actually have these diseases that can make the uh, uh, vaccine. So is there an inherent danger in that? Well, so um, there are two answers to that, I think. One is, if we were living in an ideal world where everybody was happy and joyful and not looking to hurt each other, then we would say eradication is completely fine and just keeping a few little, uh, you know, viruses, a little, a few stocks around for research purposes or just in case, you know, something arises again by itself. Yeah you know, then we, we would be okay with that. I think the problem that you're, you're uh, you know, alluding to is it's not 100% under control necessarily. Uh, the Soviets uh, weaponized huge amounts, tons of smallpox, and we're not sure where all of that got off to. Um, they buried a bunch of stuff physically uh, in, on, a, on a particular island. It doesn't mean that just because you bury it that it's gone away. It's a it's a hardy virus. In the um, in, in yeah, that island in the in the Arctic near the Arctic. Yeah, so they buried smallpox on an island in the Arctic on a warming planet. Anyway, yes. <laughs> this is what I'm saying. Uh, so there is there is an inherent danger. Yes. There is an inherent danger, and yes. you know the thing the thing is, and one of the reasons we wanted to do this. Uh, graphic novel about germ warfare is not because we're all just fascinated with history. It is because history repeats itself. And we're not sure where all this stuff is. But I think the third thing is that what people were able to do centuries and decades ago, people are certainly able to do now. It's just a matter of getting your hands on some things, uh, perhaps, like ge perhaps genetically modifying some things, and we're right back to where we were before. Uh, yeah, I work in IT, um, World War Z, very popular with my colleagues, partly because we have our own actual zombie outbreaks to deal with. Um, and, and kind of on that theme, uh, and I also live about 40 minutes from Fort Detrick, so that's kind of on my mind. I was wondering if you could talk about kind of the ethical debate, because like we've had, you know, in IT, the equivalent of a biosafety level four thing getting out of Fort Detrick, which was the NSA tool leaks over the last couple of years from the uh, Shadow Brokers group. And, you know, there are people who say, why did NSA even develop that, given that it would be so hazardous if it ever leaked out? And uh, uh, just wondering if that's something that, uh, or, or like, where does that debate go on the biological side of it? And does the biological side look at the computer science side and say, well, there are lessons we could learn there, or we could, there are lessons we could teach there? Yeah, I think as a, you don't need to be an expert to answer the question about ethics, because we're all citizens. We're all the experts on that. See, this is the, the reason that we all have to be educated and we have to read the news and we have to make informed choices because we are the boss. We don't get to blame the government in a democracy. You don't, because we are the government. You know, in Game of Thrones, there's like 12 people making the decisions for millions and everybody else is just praying to God they don't die. <laughs> That's not us. And so if we understand the issues, then we hold our government accountable. We are the ones that say, no, 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 you're not allowed to do that. I'm the taxpayer. I'm the voter. I get to make the choice whether I want you, the expert, to do that. That's not ethical. Because there's a reason we didn't use the atom bomb in Vietnam or in Korea. 
or in many other places because it was the voters that would not stand for that. They didn't want to live in a country that would repeat Hiroshima as something convenient. And we're not a country that wants to use germ warfare as a convenient way to wipe out an enemy. We're just not. So the only thing that keeps the experts in check is you. And you won't be able to do that. We, I won't be able to do that if we don't understand the issues. So it's a little uncomfortable, makes my head hurt sometimes. And look, I suffer from dyslexia, so this ain't easy for me. But when we step into the ballot box, we step into the polling place and we cast our vote, we need to know what is right and what is wrong. I would just add that we are looking at the cyber side as well, yes. Hi, Mr. Brooks, I had a quick question for you about uh, one part of your book, World War Z. There was one character who was described as a uh, Civil Air Patrol dirigible pilot. I was just wondering uh, what your connection, if any, to Civil Air Patrol is. Oh, the reason, in World War Z I have blimps, uh, and the reason I have is just because blimps are very convenient because of loiter time. So I thought that was a, a great way to do it. One last question I think we have time for. Uh, yeah, Ken, you kind of mentioned about developing a, a national plan for response to viruses and uh, bacteria outbreaks. Can you talk a little bit about um, coordinating with state-level plans or county-level plans and then also with regional plans or with Canada and Mexico or with the globe? Yeah, I think people should suspect that we actually stood you up to, do, to ask that question because it's the perfect question for us. Um, I, could, I could go on all afternoon, but I'll spare you. Um, yes, the, the, we have been very focused on, let me step back a second. One of the problems is what we alluded to earlier, sort of lack of attention or insufficient attention to this problem, all right? So we're focused on that. But also, and part, partly as a symptom of that, within the government, we don't have, within the U.S. federal government, enough coordination among all the different actors in the health area, defense area, justice area, and so on, all of whom have to play a part in biodefense, whether it's naturally occurring or man-made threats. That is even more a problem when you talk about going from the federal to state and local coordination. And there is, you know, a good bit of coordination. They do, you know, live, live exercises to try to exercise that. But it's wanting. Then when you take it from there to the international scale, and I think um, Asha could, could speak to that too, you know, there, there are international conventions and the like that we alluded to. There, has, there is coordination, but my, our hope is that the more, the higher profile that this issue gets here within the U.S. at the top levels of our government, the more that's going to then pull other actors, be they state and local or international actors, into a broad consensus that we need to get more serious about this issue. So great question. Thank you. All right, we've got one more minute. I just want to wrap up. And I want to say that in a time of division, there is a moment of hope because this is when they say a bipartisan panel, they really mean it. And as a citizen, that was very hopeful for me meeting these people because they are Democrats and Republicans. And they understand something very fundamental. Germs don't vote, right? Germs don't care what your political affiliation is. They don't, you know, at a time of identity politics, they don't care about your race. They don't care about your gender identity. They don't care. They don't care how you identify yourself. They're coming for us, all of us. And so this is something we can all get together on. 
And it is hopeful because if we educate ourselves, it's also a great way of getting rid of anxiety if we know what we're talking about. When anthrax hit my building, 30 Rock, I might have been the only one there that wasn't scared because I already knew about anthrax. I'd already been scared. So I knew how to deal with it. So I went in, everybody's freaking out. Drew Barrymore's passing out, and Tom Green had to bring her back in. And, and I was like, guys, it's just anthrax. So if you're feeling scared, if you're feeling anxiety, the best thing to do, just learn about it. Then you will feel better. And then all of us, experts and regular folks, will be able to keep the germs at bay because what keeps us healthy also keeps us safe.
continue this uh, our discussion. This panel uh, is going to uh, share with us their thoughts with regard to risk associated, frankly, with the misuse of biotechnology. Uh, we've asked them to address methods to reduce the risk associated with the mis misuse of emerging uh, technologies in the life sciences arena, uh, the ramifications for cyber biosecurity, and we ask them to comment as well on the adequacy or inadequacy of federal leadership uh, in this very critical space. So we're very grateful to have your participation. Uh, Dr. James Diggins, Director of Bioinformatics and Biosecurity at Twist Bioscience, and uh, Dr. Allison Burke, Executive Director, Stanford Cyber Initiative, the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies. We welcome you both, Dr. Doctor, but ladies first. Dr. Burke. Thank you. Esteemed members of the panel, thank you for the opportunity to speak with you today about cyber biosecurity and to provide an academic perspective on potential areas of focus within this field. I work at Stanford University in the Cyber Policy Center, which is a cybersecurity focused research center within the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies. And several of our projects and my research interests in particular focus on applying methods and insights between cybersecurity and biosecurity, as well as other domains of national security as a whole. Today, I'd like to talk with you about three areas of research that address First, the application of cybersecurity threat modeling to open source indicators of compliance with biosecurity and biodefense agreements or treaties. Second, mechanisms for the private sharing of sequence information that is relevant to biodefense. And finally, the implications of common targets of cyber attack for shared and concentrated biosafety systems in the US. The first topic on open source indicators of compliance with biosecurity and biodefense agreements is informed by the understanding that biological and biomedical research activity produces digital records. These records include publicly available data, such as publications, researchers, conference attendance and travel, uploaded data to shared repositories like GenBank, LinkedIn connections, and the use of open source bioinformatics tools that are available publicly at sites like GitHub. The importance of these open sources of data can be traced back to the failure of the US during the Cold War to identify the full capabilities of the Soviet Union's biological weapons program. Sergei Popov, who was instrumental in leading that program, criticized US intelligence at the time for not recognizing that Soviet scientists were less communicative and less prolific when they began bioweapons work. In an interview in 2000 about his former colleagues, he noted, quote, recently I've begun looking up what my former colleagues have published. All I found were a few lousy, lousy papers. This suggests they are currently working on something they cannot publish. And that's a good indication the program is still functioning. That's all they are allowed to publish, end quote. The Biological and Toxin Weapons Convention asks states parties to provide information as part of the confidence building measures on their dual use research activities, including publications, research programs and centers, and contact between scientists and experts, but this information is not substantially verified or cross-checked. Drawing from procedures used in computer security for insider threat detection, open source indicators of research activity can be used to both substantiate information provided as part of the confidence building measures and to model legitimate activity by country and pathogen of interest to detect variations from standard levels of activity. Computer security researchers divide the identification of insider threats into two classifications, misuse-based and anomaly-based detection. Anomaly-based detection is a method that models legitimate behavior and identifies the degree to which observed behavior deviates from that model. In contrast, misuse-based detection models malicious behaviors and identifies the degree to which observed behavior matches or conforms to those models. In contrast to the current confidence building measures in the BWC, which rely on the affirmative production of data designed to represent legitimate activities, such as a list of facilities that could be but are not used for biological weapons production, or reports of research and collaborations on defensive work, 
A threat detection paradigm informed by insider threat research would also include an analysis of situations in which the absence of data could indicate the concealment of illegitimate data. These absences could include a lack of publications or conference presentations, low rates of conference attendance, a dearth of collaborations or student-driven work produced by academic institutions, or patterns of use of common tools like GenBank, PubMed, or the BioArchive that differ from average researcher behavior. The choice of whether to use misuse-based or anomaly-based detection often reflects the breadth of variety in legitimate and illegitimate behaviors. In the case of biological weapons production, we have greater insight into the variety of legitimate behavior from the many countries that are state parties to the BWC, and we can use data from these countries to model legitimate behavior for anomaly-based detection. As a proof of concept, research that I've conducted using publications from PubMed, the BioArchive, and Google Scholar, indexed by the author's country of affiliation, affiliated organization, university, or center, and keywords corresponding to pathogens of concern identifies known trends in funding and research interests and has also found patterns of decreased publication reflected in papers from certain countries that correspond to topics like radiation, where this decrease is not reflected in overall publications, nor in publications corresponding to other common keywords like diabetes or tuberculosis. Collecting and analyzing these data can therefore provide both a baseline for evaluating legitimate research behavior, a means of predicting future output for comparison against reported activities, and an indication of areas where divergence from previous trends can be investigated further. My suggestion for the panel is that these sources of information be evaluated as potential additional confidence building measures and as supplemental data verifying compliance with the BWC and other agreements on dual use research. A previous recommendation of this panel was to develop recommendations for biological and toxin weapons convention verification, and so I propose that the use of open source indicators of relevant research activity be used as a baseline against which to compare the information submitted in annual reports and individual states' historical activities. The second topic I would like to discuss are mechanisms for the private sharing of sequence information relevant to biodefense. The coordinated sharing of biologically relevant information, like gene or protein sequences, is relevant both to monitoring dual-use research and potentially concerning DNA assembly, as mentioned by Dr. Diggins, as well as to monitoring and sourcing outbreaks from samples obtained outside the laboratory. One concern with either was sharing either sequences obtained from monitoring equipment or those submitted to companies providing sequencing and assembling services is the privacy of those sequences. Researchers submitting samples for sequencing may not be ready to publish those sequences, perhaps to preserve intellectual property, and similarly, agencies running environmental monitoring equipment may also have an interest in keeping private the initial results of those tests. However, a lack of coordinated sequence evaluation can hinder the identification of new outbreaks or could allow bad actors to circumvent security checks on the sequencing and assembly of restricted materials. Researchers I work with at Stanford have taken encryption schemes used in computer science to compute shared values in a privacy-preserving manner and have adapted them to the evaluation and comparison of genetic sequences, such as those from patients with undiagnosed or novel genetic diseases. Rather than revealing the content of these sequences, these cryptographic protocols perform exact computations on genomic data without sharing the genomic inputs with either participants or with the entity performing those computations or tests. This is known as secure multi-party computation. For example, if two research facilities are working on similar strains of avian influenza, it may be useful for a centralized entity to compare the sequences of those strains against strains obtained and sequenced outside the lab without publishing or knowing the exact sequences of the strains used by either lab. Perhaps this is because the labs do not fully trust the centralized test provider or they don't fully trust each other. The objective in secure multi-party computation is to develop a protocol that allows the provider to provide both labs the same sequence comparison service while protecting the secrecy of both sequences. The provider will learn where the compared sequences are the same, but will not learn the sequences themselves. One way to achieve the above goal is to split the provider into two non-colluding test providers, which then jointly compute the sequence comparison while individually learning nothing at all about either sequence. This privacy-preserving operation can be achieved using a notion called secret sharing, which involves the use of a random number that is known to the lab but not the test provider to obfuscate the actual sequence data while allowing the sequence comparison to be computed. 
These ideas can be extended to support more complex computations involving any number of researchers or labs who first securely share some information with the two test provider services. The two services securely compute on the shared inputs, and as long as they do not collude, the only information that is revealed to either of them is the outcome of the computation and nothing else. A previous recommendation of this panel was to improve data sharing with the National Biosurveillance Integration System, and I'm suggesting that this method of secure computation could improve public-private data sharing by eliminating concerns over the privacy of sequence information. It could also inform the creation of a sequence repository for dual-use research of concern that would allow states party to the WC to share sequences they are working with while maintaining the privacy of the details of their research programs. The third area of research I would like to discuss is the implications of common targets of cyber attack for shared and concentrated biosafety systems. As we learned from the Stuxnet cyber attack on control systems governing uranium-enriching centrifuges, industrial control system software is commonly shared across systems in various locations and industries, infrequently updated, and difficult to patch. The concentration of the manufacturers and distributors of these systems means that commonly used control system software can be used to support either targeted or general attacks. One area in which we have seen an increased focus on the vulnerability of outdated hardware is voting machines. And research that I and others at Stanford are working on suggests that another understudied potential source of vulnerabilities is biosafety control systems, like the industrial autoclaves and sterilization systems used in hospitals and food production facilities, and the water treatment equipment used in heating and cooling systems to prevent the spread of pathogens like Legionella bacteria, which causes Legionnaire's disease and is naturally found in fresh water. The relative concentration of the manufacturers of these systems means that a single vulnerability can be used to target systems and facilities across the country. As an example, two of the most common manufacturers of industrial sterilization equipment comprise over half of sales by volume and use the same type of programmable logic controllers, a type of computer chip that governs the operation of the equipment. These controllers are also used in sterilizers manufactured by two of the other largest manufacturers in this industry, and vulnerabilities have been reported in these controllers. But because they are used in several types of facility and across industries, there is no coordinated effort to patch and verify the security of these systems like an ISAC. I propose that a measure like this would help the, security of Home, the Secretary of Homeland Security, along with the relevant information sharing and analysis centers, monitor signs of attack against these systems that should be addressed in a coordinated manner. Thank you for inviting me here to speak with you today, and I would welcome any questions or discussion. So good afternoon. Uh, my thanks to the panel for inviting me uh, to speak with you today. So TUS Bioscience is a manufacturer of synthetic DNA based in San Francisco. We were founded in 2013 uh, and went public in October of 2018. Uh, TWIST and other manufacturers of synthetic DNA occupy a key nexus in that we're responsible for the conversion of digital DNA sequences into actual DNA sequences. And synthesis companies have long realized that a responsibility comes with that role. Uh, and that the, since the invention of gene length synthesis, the industry has worked proactively to ensure that this synthesis is carried out safely and securely. In 2010, HHS published the Screening Framework Guidance for Providers of Synthetic Double-Stranded DNA. It doesn't really roll off the tongue. Uh, we call it the guidance. Uh, it, it provided a set of recommended practices that encouraged synthesis companies to screen both their customers and the sequences that were ordered. In parallel, several of the largest DNA synthesis companies came together to form the International Gene Synthesis, Gene synthesis Consortium, or the IGSC. Uh, this is a trade industry organization that's intended to promote the beneficial application of, of gene synthesis technology and responsible research while safeguarding biosecurity. The IGSC published a harmonized screening protocol to provide additional tactical detail around implementation of the US uh, government guidance. Sequence screening is intended to identify when a customer orders what is termed a sequence of concern. So in this context, 
That's a sequence that's unique to one of the agents or toxins that are listed for domestic control under the Federal Select Agent Program or are listed on the Commerce Control List and require a license for export from the United States. Twist itself is a member company and an officer of the IGSC. Uh, our silicon-based DNA synthesis technology has reduced the cost per base of synthetic DNA by an order of magnitude, allowing researchers to test more hypotheses for the same cost. That has driven global progress in fields as diverse as healthcare, industrial chemical production, agricultural biotech, even storage of digital data in DNA. And we've invested significant time and resources to scale our biosecurity screening process to ensure this keeps pace with our growing synthesis capability and with global demand. But evolving capabilities require forward thinking in terms of improvements to this safety net that so far has been provided by the DNA synthesis uh, order screening. Twist has recently taken a page from the cybersecurity community and worked with an outside consulting firm to red team our sequence screening system. The red team submitted modified orders for controlled sequences in an attempt to bypass screening and trigger manufacture. We believe that for such complex screening systems, this is one of the only ways to estimate overall performance and in doing so, track progress. The red teaming did uncover vulnerabilities which were quickly patched, but all of those vulnerabilities were linked back to the lack of quality and consistency in publicly available annotation for pathogen-related sequences, uh, internal copies of which we use for screening. So this has led Twist to my first recommendation to the panel for consideration, which is that sequence is capable of endowing or enhancing pathogenicity, which is the language used in export control, should be publicly annotated as such, leveraging the expertise of the biodefense community and actively maintained as scientific knowledge progresses. I realize that some may consider this an information hazard, uh, but I propose that the advantage to accurate scalable screening outweighs any assistance that a flat set of genes might offer in terms of misuse. Recently, the Director General of the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, the OPCW, stated his support for what I would see as an equivalent action in the chemical defense community, making chemical structures for weaponizable agents available publicly to ensure that all parties working to limit the risk of chemical weapons can work from the same knowledge base. Uh, allowing industry, academia, and government to work for the same set of information and shared understanding, I think, is equally important in reducing the risk uh, of misuse of biology. Uh, Twist also asked the panel to consider recommending that the US government expand its biosecurity screening guidance to include screening of oligonucleotide pools. So these are pools of collections of shorter DNA fragments. They can range from tens to hundreds of thousands of individual sequences. And those pools can be used to assemble longer gene length sequences. And that is, in fact, exactly how gene synthesis companies make gene length sequence. These pools are currently entirely exempt from recommended screening practices, although TWIST has uh, currently a prototype screening tool in development to demonstrate the technical feasibility of the approach. Uh, lastly, TWIST asked the panel to consider that new DNA synthesis technologies must continue to prioritize biosecurity. There are several new startup companies around the world working to commercialize benchtop devices for gene length synthesis. Distributing to the benchtop the capability to synthesize genes without effective biosecurity screening increases the overall risk of misuse. Uh, I know that there's an obvious economic interest in this, but this is one of those happy circumstances where economic interest overlaps with what we would see as a moral obligation to make sure that the DNA synthesis industry continues to prioritize effective biosecurity. Um, so with that, I, I thank you, and I look forward to your questions.
chairman has assumed I know more than he knows about this, and we'll find out whether I do. <laughs> um, so uh, I think a few things have come up here. One is that um, we don't want the wrong people to know the sequence of certain DNA that could have nefarious use. That's really what one of the things you were focusing on. Is that right? Yeah, so there are um, restrictions on what can be published in terms of research that involves uh, a pathogen whose effect has been amplified or something that has become more pathogenic through that research. So um, right. several researchers have been prevented from publishing on, on sequences mm -hmm. they've developed that are so, more infectious. So when you think about the ability to sequence DNA and you think about the Moore's Law sort of growth that we're seeing in both the capacity and the reduced cost in it, for how long is that really actually going to be an issue? I mean, it, it, are we racing towards the moment where it's not going to be very difficult to be able to know the sequence of virtually anything? Yeah, I think that the difficulty is not so much in um, pr in producing an organism or a strain that can't be sequenced, but rather that when someone has done research and thought about how to engineer a pathogen, um, and knows that sequence, but is able to keep control of it and keep control of the sample of that pathogen, then they're able to not share that sequence. So it's not a question of, of, of understanding the sequence of something that exists in nature, but rather something that you could synthesize that doesn't exist in nature, that right. in, potentially is more threatening than a pathogen, pathogen that exists in nature. And that, and that would only come from some fairly sophisticated research, and which, not, and which might not be readily replicated by the wrong people, but then you can obtain it by, by virtue of reading publications. Is that? Yes. Do I have that right? Yes. Okay. And, go ahead. I just wanted to clarify. Um, is this working? Yeah, I think so. And in in the the point I was making about making this sorts of sequence public, the, generally the sequence itself is already public. What is missing is the metadata layer on top that says these genes are involved in a pathogenic process, and here is their role. And it's that information that's actually key to the the sort of biosecurity-related controls that we're asked to practice, in which case we have to determine whether that gene is involved in a pathogenic process before it's controlled. And right now, that layer of data is essentially non-existent and doesn't allow a company like Twist to leverage the extensive biodefense expertise that exists in this country to make those determinations. So I'm not talking necessarily about sequence that is private, classified, that, that I'm not advocating for. This is more along the lines of the metadata associated with already public sequences in terms of their biological role. And so, <clears throat> Dr. Burke, what did you say was the precaution that should be taken to prevent that from happening? So there's an encryption technique called secure multi-party computation where if I have a sequence, and you can think of it even as my genetic sequence, and you also have your genetic sequence, and maybe both of us have symptoms and we're concerned that we share a genetic disease, um, we can both submit our sequence after adding some random, like a random number to it, adding random data to it, we can both submit our sequences to a central testing service. And that testing service won't be able to read out my sequence. They won't be able to read out your sequence. They'll only be able to tell where our two sequences are the same. And so they'll preserve you know, more than 99.6% of the privacy of our, of our individual sequences and only know whether or where those two sequences are the same. That sounds like something that would be used <clears throat> a lot in forensics, is that right? It could be, yeah. Um, currently, it's it's used to test patients um, who are concerned about potentially having a rare genetic disease, um, where they can also encode phenotypic information um, along with the sequence, 
and then can compare across many different doctors and hospitals and um, not reveal the sequences of patients that might be private information, um, not reveal that to one another. So there's the access to data issue. Is there, t talk about the access to equipment issue. We've spent a lot of time in this panel talking about that. Uh, are you, either of you or both of you, of the view that there is equipment, sequencing equipment that should, that needs to be much more tightly controlled than it is now, if that's at all possible, or does it need to be regulated to the, more so than it is now? The question is specifically tied to sequencing equipment? Yeah. Uh, not that, I mean, in my opinion, that's sort of, that cat's out of the bag. Yeah, I think, mm -hmm. okay. And then with regard to your comment about um, being able to uh, acquire the, the building blocks, if you were, talk about what the precaution is to pre prevent that from being going into the wrong hands. So, so the, the precaution would be the current um, screening process in part by the centralized synthesis companies, um, you know, we believe is very effective in terms of controlling access to genes that might be used or subject to misuse. Th there is a danger in terms of uh, benchtop synthesis devices, in terms of how the, bio the current model of biosecurity screening, which relies on human judgment, would scale to benchtop devices. And so one path is to work to provide the, the metadata necessary to automate that judgment which doesn't currently exist. And that's the kind of thing that uh, the U.S. government could play an important role in supporting. So how many companies like yours are there? In the uh, I don't have an exact count. I would say there's probably a dozen fairly large-scale companies worldwide. Um, there's probably several times that in smaller companies. And in what ways are you regulated that someone uh, who does a small-scale startup might not be? Is that... Am I warm there? Uh, in terms of the size of the company, uh, there isn't any regulatory control that would differ based on the size of the synthesis company. Okay. Well, I'll pause and uh, yield back. Yeah, well, thank you very much. That's why I asked you to go first. Uh, thank you very much. I, I have a question. Yeah, I mean, I, so I mentioned you have more specific um, protocols within the sequencing industry. I was referring to the reports that countries have to provide as part of their adherence with the BWC, um, where they provide information on ongoing dual-use research, vaccine development research facilities. Um, and I'm saying that, that um, the data, the information they're providing in those reports can be validated with publicly available sources of publication data, funding data. I would, I would just say we, we take a, a tiered approach to validating customers based on um, the profile of what they've ordered. So if you do order a sequence of concern, that triggers a much more detailed follow-up with the customer. It triggers a voice conversation. It triggers um, uh, recovery from them of a statement of what they intend to do with the material. We confirm, and in some cases, we actually track down the sort of corporate documents that, that set up the company if it's otherwise difficult to track down. 
especially for small companies, that can be quite hard. Um, so, so there is a, a very strong effort on our part to ensure that we are selling, selling to someone who um, is verifiable and who, who also has a history of working in this area in terms of publication record, corporate product line, that sort of thing. I will say that the number of cases where that kind of concern has occurred has been vanishingly small. Uh, we do have protocols in place that if we cannot reliably validate that this person is who they say they are, who works in the area that they say they do, that we just refuse the order. Um, and we do partner with our local WMD coordinator in the FBI uh, in terms of reach, reach through for uh, US government assistance. You talked about the, the red team drills that you've done, um, and that was to make sure that you were as secure as possible. So what I was trying to get at earlier is, so um, you do that voluntarily. Not, it's not necessarily the case, or maybe you know or don't know, that all of the other companies who have your capacities do the same things. No, we, we have uh, promoted this as a good idea inside the IGSC, but uh, as far as I know, Twist is the only company who's mm -hmm. uh, proactively sought this out. So what I'm trying to get at is you, you've done that. You've taken, you sort of got above and beyond to, to, with, with that exercise, um, but you're not required to, to do anything of the sort by, no. by the federal government. No. And so the question is, I mean, that, that, tell, that, that sort of implies that you're taking all of these precautions because you think there's a risk out there. It's not required that you do, but there are other entities, and there will probably be more and more entities like yours, companies like yours, who may not be as um, cautious and taking those levels of security. And, w and what, if anything, should the federal government be doing about that? So, and, and sometimes it's not even an issue of, of a desire to be responsible. It's actually quite expensive to build and maintain these screening systems, they require you know, PhD level expertise to build and even to operate. So uh, there, there is a need there for some kind of um, you know, publicly available screening mechanism for smaller companies to make use of. There's a, there's a current project being run by the Nuclear Threat Initiative and the World Economic Forum to do just that, to build a common screening mechanism that smaller companies could make use of. Uh, and I, TWIST is strongly supportive of that, of that effort. Interestingly, one of the first problems they're going to run up against is screening against what? Because there is no list of sequences they'll find. Uh, there is only a list of species names. And some of these species are bacterial. They have very large genomes. Most of those genes are entirely harmless, and they're incredibly valuable for use in industrial settings. So you cannot just receive an order for a gene that happens to be from a pathogen and deny it. It's actually, is that gene specifically involved in the pathogenic process of that organism? And for some organisms, that's a very difficult question to answer and requires a lot of detailed biodefense knowledge. And that isn't broadly available in the kinds of communities that are more expert in assembling DNA. And so how do you bridge those two communities? I think that's something the US government really could, could assist in, because we have a very rich biodefense community who knows the answers to these questions. 
But it's still, it's, it's a even if you built the system you just described, it's still voluntary. It's not it's mandatory. Still voluntary. But, but the vast majority of companies recognize that it's in their best interest to be extremely active in terms of ensuring responsible use of the materials that we synthesize. So you're not recommending a, a new regulatory uh, requirement in this regard? So far, the U.S. government and the industry have agreed that self-regulation has seemed to work. I think the most important driver would be in reducing the cost of that screening and, the, and, and offering resources that would increase the accuracy. So there, there have been. There have been some discussions within the U.S. government and the IGSC about perhaps restricting NIH dollars to only be spent on synthesis activities at companies who screen, who actively screen. One of the big, <laughs> one of the big questions there is. How do you determine who screens and who doesn't? You know, is there a third-party authority that somehow could test or otherwise engage with these synthesis companies? And right now, there is nothing other than you taking my word for it that we screen uh, to be able to, to validate that. So I, I think those two things, economic incentives paired with some kind of certification, uh, would be a valuable step. Just, would it be appropriate for the government to engage an independent third party to do that on behalf of uh, the public writ large or something that the government should do itself? Twist as a U.S. company would, would probably be okay with either. I, I would say that the synthesis industry is quite global. Correct. And so having a recognized international third party would probably be a way to broaden the reach of that kind of certification regime. That's a powerful recommendation. I appreciate that. Just a real question, uh, quick question, uh, Dr. Burke. Just out of curiosity, uh, Stanford, you think Stanford, you think great research university, et cetera. I mean, there's so many, one of the brand there, and there are many similar universities in this space. Um, if you care to comment on the extent to which the university embraces uh, the necessity for a robust uh, cybersecurity a program protecting these assets, protecting this uh, proprietary intellectual information, and uh, whether or not, from your perspective, uh, because it is also it's also a matter of prioritizing dollars spent within that research community. Care to just uh, make any observations in that regard? Sure. Please. Um, I guess being located in Silicon Valley, we do receive a lot of funding, both from companies and foundations, uh, to do research on cybersecurity. Um, not just the Cyber Policy Center, but also um, labs within the Computer Security Department, um, the Human-Centered AI Initiative. There are a lot of, kind of multidisciplinary research centers on campus that are focused yes. on cybersecurity. Relatively fewer on biosecurity, and I feel that that's an under-recognized area for um, foundation funding um, and for private philanthropic funding. We do have a biosecurity initiative within the Freeman Spogli Institute, but it's it has a very small budget and has been struggling to get funding for this type of multidisciplinary work. Okay, thank you, thank you. 
So you you look to sources external from the university to help provide that security funding. <clears throat> okay, Senator Daschle. Thank you, Governor Ridge. I, I I'm just intrigued by the notion that self policing and self uh, self uh, governance uh, could be sufficient given the just the growing threat that I perceive internationally in particular um, in other contexts, not necessarily in this one. And I guess I would have two questions. Um, I'm still, you, you both have been such eloquent um, experts in this field. I, I, I'm still a little unclear as to what the, what the best way uh, there is. What, how do, what, what is the, the most effective way to address the risks posed by individual DNA sequences? How do we, is there any consensus around how we do that, address those risks more effectively from a security point of view? But then I also am concerned, I guess, about the degree to which we protect um, those uh, from those risks from international intervention. And is there is there no international um, agreement or international understanding or international concern about this area and to what extent has this become not just a domestic challenge but an international one? I, I think it is It is a very uh, new and rapidly evolving set of capabilities and so in that sense <laughs> I think maybe international agreements are, are playing catch up to some degree. So there is the Australia Group, which is the treaty organization that harmonizes export control across ChemBio-related technologies. Uh, they've been looking at how to address uh, kind of advancing the degree of control that they exercise over sequences. Right now, it's specific to lists of species, which is generally where most of these control regimes uh, still live, you know, lists of species. And that, and that makes whether a particular sequence is controlled or not quite difficult to determine from time to time. Um, the other organization that might come to mind is the Bioweapons Convention. And I think they're still struggling with how to come to terms with how that convention should evolve in the face of emerging technologies. So I'm, I'm not aware of any international regime that would really have a whole lot to say on uh, sequence control. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I would also point to the BWC. Um, the concern that I've seen in terms of the danger of sequence information being shared internationally is primarily in medical samples that are sometimes sent to sequencing at facilities located in other countries where the concern is that that country is also storing that data and kind of creating a repository of um, sequence information, medical information from people outside that country. Um, some of the scenarios that I'm interested in in terms of the BWC are ways that we can kind of start banking data ahead of time so that in the event that a pathogen is released or there's question about attribution, we have records of what sequences uh, countries around the world have reported as having been working on ahead of that time so that we can compare that sequence found in the wild against sequences that have been worked on and have been reported to have been worked on um, and kind of attribute that. And I think one of the best ways to do that is to provide them this kind of encryption layer where we can say you are providing these sequences to the BWC or to the UN or to an international body, but you're not providing all of that information in the clear. We would only find out what that sequence is if it's released, if there's an event where we have to compare the sequence causing an outbreak with a sequence you've been working on. So I guess my, here's my basic question, I guess, is, is there a consensus in the community on what the best ways are to address the risks of sequencing 
And if there is a consensus, it would seem to me that it would involve in some ways some sort of a, a regulatory framework or a, a some sort of a, a national framework to be able to do it effectively to ensure complete participation. But how would you address that? I guess in terms of the risks of sequencing, um, most of what comes to mind is that personal data privacy, medical data privacy concern. Um, I think more of the risks that we're concerned about are risks of assembly. Um, you can feel free to, to contradict me, but I think that um, part of the way that we would address those risks is by sharing data among all of the companies that are performing assembly and that are um, both doing sequencing and providing oligos, providing uh, DNA material back to customers where the concern is that um, a customer with a bad intention could ask for small pieces that could be assembled into something, um, in, into you know a concerning pathogen, but each of those small pieces are themselves small enough that they wouldn't trigger um, concern. So you can get an oligo that's eight nucleotides long, and if you get enough of them, you can string them together, and that'll be a costly and kind of error-prone procedure, but if you try enough, you can, you can string them together and then produce a sequence that you're, you know, a piece of DNA that you're not supposed to have from those individual pieces. And so the only way we can figure out if someone's ordering those little ATMERs from, from multiple different companies is for them all to share information about what customers are requesting and what they're providing. And, and uh, to sort of follow on what you're saying, so we're trying to address that threat model within a single company. And then I think the, the detail you gave about kind of the homomorphic encryption activities might help to address the between company communication. That's always been part of what the IGSC has discussed is how, how would we cope with someone dividing up a gene and ordering the pieces from multiple different companies? And there, there is within the IGSC, there's an, an established method for uh, alerting other synthesis companies that someone has come to you and tried to order something that you denied. So we do actively prevent venue shopping across IGSC companies. But I think what we're talking about here is what happens if someone's trying to stay sub-threshold right. and, and order that across companies. And that really, uh, right now, there's not a good way to address that. Uh, we're certainly working on ways within a single company that we would be have better insight into those order patterns. Uh, but across companies is still a challenge. Very helpful. Let me just, uh, unrelated to sequencing, cyber and biological sciences increasingly in recent years are converging. If we assume that we can approach cybersecurity from either field, what would be the best approach to increasing cyber biosecurity from the cyber domain? So I'm, I'm biased in terms of the, the goal for our screening system is to ensure that our customers are engaged in responsible research. And to that end, what would help us would be to approach it from the biosecurity side to have better metadata, to have better support from expert communities to stay on the cutting edge of scientific advancement. So we're, we're a DNA synthesis company. We're never going to be able to keep up with all the literature out there on evolving understanding of biodefense and pathogenic mechanisms. So we need some capability to help us do that in order for screening to be of maximal utility. And the second is that the DNA synthesis industry probably shouldn't serve as the only control point for biosecurity concerns within you know, the biotech space. So there are a lot of layers in sort of the synthetic biology companies where you've got organism engineering, you've got scale up. Those companies as well need to be brought into the fold and understand the biosecurity implications of the work that they're being asked to, to do. Uh, 
Um, so I'm tempted to say that we should address it from the point of view of cybersecurity, but in our experience, a lot of what cybersecurity can tell you is what doesn't work or what has failed before, which can be useful, but we don't have a lot of um, foolproof solutions. Um, a lot of what I would suggest is that what has come to work for many companies that understand they have to secure you know, customer data but don't have engineers of the caliber of Google, say, um, is to outsource that that functionality and to allow Google or Amazon to store their data um, and outsource some of that security capability. So I guess my suggestion for um, companies that are storing secure sequence information um, or other secure medical information would be to learn from um, what kind of the gold standard is in terms of Google or Amazon protecting uh, other industries. Well, thank you both. Really appreciate your being here today. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks very much for your remarks. Uh, Dr. Diggins, I want to just follow up with you. You talked about, I guess, the, the customer screening process and uh, consultation with the WMD coordinator at the FBI. Just um, as to that piece of it, working at the FBI, what is that process? Sort of what are the expectations? What kind of response do you get when you, when you call? And are there areas where that process can be improved, the linkage between you and the FBI can be better, that kind of thing? So, so I'd start off by saying we haven't done it very often, uh, but we have, I would say, good contacts within our local WMD coordinator offices. I know who to call, I know their names, I know their phone numbers, I've exchanged emails a few times a year just to check in with them. Um, so in that sense, we've had really, I think, quite success, successful relationships with the FBI in that if I do receive something that just makes no sense, I know exactly who to call. Um, and, and the few times that that has happened, it's, they've been very supportive and proactive. So I, I think that mechanism has really worked effectively. Um, I don't have offhand any... Yeah. Supportive and proactive in terms of giving you information? In uh, terms so of supportive in, in saying, the sense hey, that steering you away or saying everything's fine or... In, in the sense that um, it's, it's... Yeah, yes. Uh, it, they have essentially listened to us, listened to our concerns, gathered data on what we have told them, and then we feel like we've addressed the problem, right? Otherwise, it would just stay within Twist, and we wouldn't necessarily know what to do with it. What the FBI then does with it isn't really... Okay, so... <laughs> interesting. So right, you're that's saying that's FBI's business. You're providing that information to them for them to make use of, but right. and I, what I guess I was trying to discern is whether there's a... Oh look, I think there's that's not a problem, or this that does look problematic, and give you some feedback in terms of what steps you should take. Yeah, and again, this hasn't happened very often, so I don't have a, a good set of data to rely on. But that, in the in the few instances where that has happened, it hasn't been a two-way uh, exchange of data. That doesn't mean it wouldn't be, but th these cases haven't necessitated that. Okay, all right, because there are obvious challenges there, because right. as I said in an earlier panel, you know, because of classification, that kind of thing. Right. Um, and then second thing is I just was looking at your bio and I just I have to ask you what this means. I don't know if I can actually s say it without mangling it, but you've been done research on novel algorithmic approaches to discerning intent in oligonucleotide length DNA syn synthesis requests. What does that mean? So, <laughs> this, you don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you don't I know, I'm going to tell you. Come grade. on. Yeah, uh, um, so, so this gets to... Um, if someone orders from us a pool of 10,000 100 base pair sequences, and what they intend to do with that pool is assemble out of it five genes that we otherwise wouldn't give them, how do we computationally estimate the risk of that upfront before we make the pool, before we make the decision about whether to sell it to them? And 
treat that within the same framework that we treat gene lane sequence, right? So these, these pools you can think of as pre-genes. Mm -hmm. So how do we treat a pool of oligonucleotide sequences and um, make educated guesses about if you wanted to, what could you make from that pool? And you, this is a process by which you use an algorithm to help to identify That's that right. possibility? That's right. Fascinating. Yeah. You got a cooler job than I do. Interesting. Okay. Thank you very much. Not necessarily the information, but the, the pool of sequences itself, um, subject to the constraints involved in how you make a gene out of small pieces, could you take this pool and do that? Um, and for most pools that are used for CRISPR or other use cases, the answer is a very obvious no, that you could do nothing to that pool that would result in a gene length sequence. But for pools where that's the intent, there's a lot of attributes of the sequences in that pool that will indicate that that's possible. And so you can use that to sort of estimate, if I had this pool and I tried, what could I make out of it? And if the probability is past a certain threshold, then we would treat it as a gene in, for biosecurity-related reasons. This is right now a prototype. So what we're trying to do is mature that algorithm such that we could put it in line with all of our other biosecurity screening activities. And so these oligo pool products as they come in, would be subject to this risk estimation pro process and then trigger biosecurity alerts in the same way that gene orders trigger biosecurity alerts now. <laughs> we will not sell that to our competitors. I mean, that's, that's at least the current model is, is to ensure that well, <laughs> no, I, 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 it, it, it is distinguishing, but that's not necessarily why we're doing it. I think we see it as a pretty large, you know, hole in the current biosecurity safety approach, or biosecurity safety net approach, and we're trying to address that. Thank you. So I'll just follow up on, on that point that you aren't necessarily going to share the algorithm with other companies where you're actually providing a national security benefit by doing that, or you will be when it's operational. Is that correct? I, I, so we haven't made any business decisions about whether we're going to share it. We, we might publish on it. I mean, the, there's a lot of options in terms of how we would communicate what we did to the community. I think what we're focused on now is making sure it works first. And sure. then we can make those decisions. Right. And, and it's also, though, dependent on the, the, the fact that you, that there is the possibility that the client is going to another company and getting other pieces, and you don't include those unless you're sharing with the other companies the pieces that you're making and what they might be making, right? Yeah, so, so that risk that already exists on the gene side would continue to exist on the oligopool side. Right. And... Um, it also doesn't take into account what you said about other com countries that have companies that are doing this as well, where we are getting much more sophisticated through what Twist is doing and others in this country in our ability to determine whether or not uh, someone's put putting together some a sequence of concern, where I have a problem with the definition of sequence of concern. But I won't go back to that at this point. Um, but in other countries, 
uh, there are other things that are being done that are not controlled in any way, shape, or form the way it's being done in the U.S. So it could be said that we are slowing down, increasing the cost, hamstringing ourselves in some ways in order to provide a certain degree of security, of biosecurity that we can't guarantee by any means in other countries. Is that right? There, there is a piece of that. I, I think Twist has worked very hard to, to ensure those systems scale and um, to reduce the kind of per base contribution to the overall cost. Uh, but, but this gets back to how can we economically incentivize synthesis companies to screen? Can we provide easily accessible screening approaches? Can we uh, direct you know, federal funding at least to go towards companies that are responsible and are screening? So how can we favor economically the companies that do take responsibility for their technology? Right, and, and by doing that um, and keeping your costs as low as possible, you do increase, um, you incentivize researchers to come to you for synthesis instead of doing a bench top themselves, even while NIH's funding increases in the ability to synthesize longer lengths. Um, so it will, over time, just as happened with sequencing, bench top sequencing, that um, laboratories will be able to do their own synthesis in-house. In um, but as long as you're more convenient and cheaper, why should they? And so it, it's, there is a huge incentive on both sides to keep your costs down and encourage um, the companies that are providing oversight to provide that service. But what do you think, um, what do you think the risks are of other countries um, and whatever, um, and, and I'm, thank you for the clarification about synthesis and um, uh, rather than sequencing, because that's really what we're worried about at this point. So what? how much of the overall synthesis do you think is happening in other countries um, where you have absolutely no knowledge of what it is that they're putting together? I, I would say we don't have good data on proportion of total market, for example. Uh, we definitely do know that there's a pretty robust international um, both market and set of synthesis providers, um, including lots of smaller companies. It's fairly straightforward to set up a small company by a you know, traditional sort of uh, AGCT chemical synthesis machine and go into business. Now, the, the DNA that you produce isn't going to necessarily be that high quality, but depending on your customer, maybe that's not a priority. Right. So the, the threshold for getting into the market as a synthesis company is fairly low. It, that is not matched by the threshold for establishing a sufficient and sophisticated screening regime to go along with that. Right. And I think that's one of the challenges. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you very much for uh, the clarity of the focus that you provided. If I may, I would like to ask you um, for your opinion, how do you bridge, for example, the concerns, the risk of misuse that you focused on with the discussion that we had uh, this morning and uh, Senator Desho uh, raise the question about consensus. Uh, as an academic, uh, one of the challenges that I see uh, relates to the tension between uh, security culture and technology culture. That is to say the blessings and the curses and all that. And it seems to me, uh, looking at the literature, <coughs> Uh, it seems that there is no consensus as to the definitional and conceptual uh, aspect of these uh, two uh, movements, if you want to use this term, uh, meaning that um, you 
ever proliferation um, of um, terms uh, such as bio uh, defense and cyber defense and um, I think the governor mentioned about uh, management of the risks. Uh, so is there any uh, effort that uh, you think can bring together all segments of society uh, to decide to identify uh, what is the nature of the threat and secondly, what are some of the uh, root causes? And thirdly, what can be done uh, about this uh, as government, as society, as the international community, and so on? Um, I, that's very broad, so I think I will, <laughs> I will pick and choose um, what I'd like to focus on. I guess in terms of being able to unify uh, cybersecurity and biosecurity, um, I think part of the forces that you identified from the technological side are, are causing that to happen regardless, and that a lot of what we are producing as biological material is now data and is indistinguishable from the type of data that we would be securing via uh, cyber systems or via computer systems. Um, in terms of having the, the kind of technological and scientific community unify around what threats are, um, I think efforts like the confidence building measures are useful in terms of elucidating what uh, countries are working on around the globe and what they are focusing on um, in terms of prevention, in terms of vaccine development, in terms of public health, um, and looking at those as if those are their primary concerns, and perhaps those are also uh, the most dangerous or, or the most virulent to focus on. Um, but what we see in cybersecurity is that the easiest um, threats to focus on are often not um, the most harmful. They may be the most common in terms of something like phishing uh, or password reuse, um, but there's always the possibility that there is kind of a zero day built into the system that we haven't identified that would be uh, a catastrophic failure. Um, I'm, I'm not sure of a good way, I guess, to identify that proactively. Uh, in some sense, we have to rely on, on research and on creativity to surface those threats from the biosecurity side uh, while doing as much as we can to um, control what we've already identified as being currently existing risks. I, I think the one piece of, piece of that I might comment on is how uh, we should think about the threat. And what I would say is that at least from, from where I sit, I hear a lot of concern about making metadata about pathogenicity and mechanisms publicly available because that might assist some kind of bad actor. And I would, I would suggest that at some level we really engage in uh, detailed um, study of exactly how much information do you need given a certain skill level to be able to do something. Because at least from what you know, where I sit and what I understand, being given, even if you had a paper that outlined an exact mechanism of pathogenicity, being able to actually recreate that in a cellular system that would compete in an environment that would be infectious in a human is incredibly difficult. And so that first layer of information may not actually give you very much at all, but it might give you a lot in terms of surveillance and screening. And so should we be much more comfortable about making that data broadly available in public and not so concerned about its misuse? It's very easy to tell ourselves stories about how this data, which sounds scary, might be misused. The functional misuse of it actually seems incredibly difficult to me. And I think we should be much more clear-eyed about how we think about and, and score that threat. 
Anything else, my colleagues? We thank you very much for your very compelling testimony and for your uh, contribution to this very important conversation. We thank you and wish you both very well. Thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, they deserve your round of applause. We'll take a quick uh, seven-minute break. Hopefully, everybody back in our seats around 2 o'clock. Check, 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 check.
You got it. But I count fast. Down to a minute and a half. All right, ladies and gentlemen, please take your seats. <clears throat> We've asked our third panel to give us their perspectives on the vulnerability of intellectual property and its impact both from security concerns and, frankly, economic security concerns. And we've got uh, two distinguished panel members to uh, give us that perspective on safeguarding the IP. Uh, one has become almost like an honorary member of the panel. I don't know, uh, Edward, you've been here two, three, four times. We could count him, but thank you for keep coming back. We keep leaning on you. But uh, Edward, you supervisory special agent, a biological countermeasures unit, uh, weapons of mass destruction directorate, FBI. And uh, Peter Edge, Peter, welcome after 30 years of public service. He's now Vice President of Corporate Security, SOS International. He was former Acting Director of ICE, United States Immigration 
in customs enforcement. And in this instance, uh, Edward, we're going to commence with you. Thank you for being here. Thank you. So good afternoon. Um, first, I want to thank the, the panel and now commission and, and Dr. George in particular for the invitation. I must be doing something right because uh, you keep bringing me back, so I appreciate that. Um, and I'll, I'll put up front that I'm going to be focusing on the, the latter part of t the, today's session on looking at convergence um, and, and a little more s less so on the cyber bio, only because I want to provide you um, a broader perspective. And cyber biosecurity does play a significant role, uh, but uh, for the sake of the, the commission, I really want to be able to provide you and put you in a position to expand the aperture of what constitutes a potential significant security challenge for the country. Um, so I'll, what I'll do is I'll just lay out a few of the things that uh, that covered what I've covered the rest of this day and just kind of fill in the blanks. So for example, uh, it was mentioned about uh, the NotPetya uh, attack that impacted Merck. And it stopped operations for months. And uh, it, was it was passed by in a comment, but uh, think about this for a second. This company had to depend upon CDC to backfill their inventory of Gardasil vaccine. So from an economic standpoint, if you thought about it, not just from the outright lobbing the grenade and stopping operations, but there was a pause. So if there was a pause, who can strategically fill in the gap? If the US can't fill the supply, then potentially a foreign competitor can then step up to the plate and provide that, and then therefore take over that particular part of the market share. And to kind of give you an example, the, the Chi Chinese market, the China provides already 80% of the generic uh, pharmaceutical market globally. Um, and we've sort of alluded to it, but we may be seeding the other 20%, and that's the first best-in-class uh, uh, pharmaceuticals that are being developed, many of which, uh, Mr. Greenwood, your, your um, constituents of bio provide. Uh, there was a heavy focus on data, and uh, you all heard in prior testimony from me about the fact that in, within China's own borders, they leveled, leveraged a physicals-for-all, low-cost medical testing for 36 million members of their population, and it was identified later on that they're using the genetic data to identify ethnic Uyghurs. So it's looking at basically what I classify as discrimination in high definition, and is a way that we're not thinking about in, in perspective. Um, the, also the fact that they are investing, this is completely above board, completely legitimate, but are actively investing, acquiring, emerging with companies in the US that have access to our Americans' uh, data whether it be genetic testing companies to find out what percentage ethnicity you may be, um, looking at the fact that many of these Chinese entities uh, meet our existing US criteria for privacy. They're HIPAA certified. They meet federal acquisition regulation contract requirements so they can put in bids for federal government contracts. They meet all of those particular bars. And then as a result, across the board, we are sending over human uh, samples, animal samples, plant samples. The specimens are being processed, they're sequenced, and yes, our clinicians, our scientists get that information, but at the end of the day, they have it too. And if they are in a position to gather all this data, they're gathering all the data within their biometric data with their own population, theoretically speaking, they are building the end-all, be-all of data sets that they could then leverage. And yes, this particular panel's um, focus is on IP. I really want to posit the fact that the IP is the finished product. If you th um, having come from Amgen, uh, I know the pipeline and, and how time intensive, how costly it is to go from idea to final product, and that's your IP. But bear in mind, that as important as that is, if someone like China is getting all the data today, 
Then now you factor in artificial intelligence, high-performance computing, maybe in the very near term, quantum computing. That's the magic that makes that data useful. And I don't think we factor that in from a security context on what does that timeline look like? Or more importantly, how does that abbreviate their timeline to then come up with the novel product and then maybe box us out uh, from the potential future market share or new business models? So are we thinking about it in those terms? Um, I also want to give you an example of where we might be missing the mark. Um, and here's a, a, an interesting case study that within a, a year of one another and uh, two of the largest Chinese-based DNA sequencing firms uh, both partnered with Huawei. And that already should get a, a, a little bit of a, a reaction from you. But it sort of makes sense that if you're, if you're going to generate massive amounts of genetic information, you want to partner with a company that has a large infrastructure to look at how do you process and, and analyze that data. And so that sort of makes sense. But immediately after that partnership, uh, Huawei announced a partnership with Philips Healthcare. And that's significant. And the reason for this partnership is the idea of aggregating electronic health uh, records, patient insurance information, medical records, genetic data, um, medical imaging data, uh, EEG, EKG scans, um, even your wearable technology Fitbit type uploads, leveraging all that data, utilizing their proprietary AI to deliver customized and most importantly affordable patient healthcare. And they've implemented this in, in hospitals um, throughout uh, China. And early indications are it looks like it's working. So that is an, uh, an interesting and powerful application. And what I said um, is usually my punchline is that Yes, your focus has been on the biodefense, and I appreciate your blueprint. But the nightmare scenario for me is no longer the someone using CRISPR to engineer a virus to cause a zombie apocalypse. Um, you know, I, in all respect to uh, Mr. Max Brooks's uh, uh, comic book, still a, a, le a legitimate concern and risk that we we need to address, and that's focused on the national biodefense strategy. But in light of where things are going, the nightmare scenario for me is that because of our potential short-sightedness on the value of the data on how it could potentially be leveraged, we may end up waking up one day and finding out that we've just become healthcare crack addicts and someone like China has become our pusher. That what happens if we become completely dependent upon a foreign supply chain uh, for our future healthcare, for our future vaccines in the wake of a pandemic, uh, for, just as a, a really a way to dominate the future healthcare pharmaceutical market. And one of the sad facts is that uh, there are, this is an evolving issue, so uh, I think one of the reasons why I'm, I appreciate coming back is I can provide these updates, that just three months ago, the Defense Department announced that they awarded Philips Healthcare a $450 million 10-year contract to look at patient healthcare delivery for all four branches of our military. So again, this is just thinking about this for a second. DOD awarded Philips Healthcare, who in turn has partnered with Huawei you make the connections on what the potential vulnerabilities might be in there. That uh, we have, is there potential access to our, our active duty members' military uh, medical records? I don't know. But fundamentally speaking, we've been talking all throughout this day about what I would consider traditional cybersecurity, but we're looking at where bio is converging, and not just in the healthcare space, but across the board. And, the, and I appreciate the term being, the bioeconomy being brought up several times throughout the day. That's impacting health. It's impacting agriculture, manufacturing, energy. And I can cite you instances where similar things are happening along the lines, whether it be outright 
um, covert or criminal acquisition of data or us basically just giving it away because we're looking at saving a fast buck today and not really run, realizing what the long-term consequences are going to be. Um, I do want to, don't want to be a complete uh, uh, doomsday person, but I want to, uh, we've been raising, the FBI have been raising this awareness for, for several years now, and there have been some wins I would like to classify. Uh, the Congresswoman early this morning mentioned the, the legislation that was passed with the NDAA that actually improved um, CFIUS. So that now, uh, with, a, with a, a reform of CFIUS, that if there's a foreign acquisition or in, uh, transaction of investment merger uh, with a U.S. entity that has access to U.S. persons, healthcare data, or other sensitive data, including genetics, that warrants a CFIUS review. And there actually was action upon that earlier this year, a Chinese firm called iCarbonX, the company is completely devoted to looking at developing machine learning and artificial intelligence tools to leverage data for clinical and behavioral applications. They had invested $100 million in a, 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 an organization called Patients Like Me. Uh, Patients Like Me is a US-based firm. It's, it's a social media platform. It's basically uh, uh, the healthcare version of Facebook. Um, so you have individuals to the tune about 750,000 that are sharing that they may be on, uh, going through a certain drug study or clinical trial or are suffering from some certain disease. They're sharing this information in the hopes that as they aggregate that they, they're ready to launch to participate in a clinical trial. So as you can imagine, you have a foreign entity getting access to some pretty intimate data. And so when the CFIUS process went through, um, it, it was raised to the level of the president, and President Trump did require that uh, iCarbonX had to divest itself um, from patients like me. The, the as aspect of that, that's a win in a security sense, but I also want to couch that as a, a little bit of a loss, because uh, this goes to the fact that why does a US firm like that have to rely on an outside entity for that type of support? Why is it that a lot of our hospitals, universities, and companies are contracting with foreign entities because they offer the lowest cost service for DNA sequencing or DNA synthesis? We do not have a domestic core capacity to offer those types of services. We do not understand and appreciate that the, the, the security implications, not only just from the health side, but absolutely from an economic standpoint. And what I really truly appreciate is the fact that thanks to this forum, you are giving us the opportunity to tie in in a way that has never been done before, that biodefense is absolutely part of our economy and thereby an intimate part of our national security. A final thought I want to leave with you is that we need to be thinking about this a little more holistically. You've been getting bits and pieces of it throughout the day, but I focus on China only because they are the 800-pound gorilla in the room, and they have been making their intentions completely blatant and open. And by using the bioeconomy perspective, it's a war of ecosystems in a way. Where are ecosystems being built up to protect it? Are we making the right investments? Are we making the right uh, 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 research investments as well? So kind of give you an example of sort of the, the picture. I've already articulated China has acquired or invested in firms that have access to data. They have the access to their DNA sequencing. They have partnered with their technical infrastructure to manage, manipulate, process that data. What's the downstream? Well, guess what? In the, in the, the last couple of years, they've also have uh, incredibly expanded their non-human primate research capabilities. So monkeys for, for animal testing. They're able to, they've expanded it by the hundreds of thousands in their breeding programs. That's translation of data to actual product testing or for eventual to, um, uh, launch into the market. They've, they've streamlined the regulatory process through their, their own FDA 
and their own animal regulatory processes to be able to, to actually do the actual testing to a global quality control standard. So what we're missing is that we're focusing, honing in on specific scenarios or specific transactions. We're now looking at the whole process. And basically what they've done is that it's much cheaper, it's faster, it's more readily accessible to do the work there. And we talk about the brain drain here in the US. Well, what they've done is they've developed a brain gain on their side. They have built out the ecosystem to draw our scientists, to draw our talent, to go over there because they can get the work done. So the cautionary tale that I want to leave with you all is that, yes, there are some significant threats um, to our economy, as well as to the different parts of the bioeconomy. But I also want to uh, showcase the fact that we need to do something to make sure that we stay ahead of the curve and, and, and really build out the innovation, right? Because that goes to the fact that where's our talent? Where, where are our resources for the future? Are we making the right investments? So yes, we need to look at security, but absolutely we need to look at how are we best promoting it? What are we doing with our own ecosystem? And finally, for just a, a final update, um, there are some attention at the White House to this issue that just uh, this past August 30th, uh, the White House released their 2021 um, research and development budget priorities uh, for all departments and agencies. And number five is the bioeconomy. We actually beat out space exploration. Um, so that's something to note. And then finally, uh, just last week, on September 10th, the White House through the OSTP, uh, through the Federal Register, released a request for information, looking, seeking public comment on how we can better protect and build out the bioeconomy. Um, so maybe that is something that, that bio might want to look in and probably provide some input. Uh, but it really does look at how do we expand, and I really appreciate uh, characterizing the multiplicative threat. It's also looking at what's the multiplicative opportunities that we might be missing out on. Um, so with that, I'll go ahead and end my statements and thank you for, again, for, the t for your time and for the opportunity. Good afternoon, and thank you very much for uh, allowing me to appear before you today. I certainly appreciate it, Governor Ridge, Senator Daschle, Honorable Mr. Weinstein, and Congressman uh, Greenwood. Uh, Based on the assessment that we just heard, we have to get working, and we have to get working fast. There's a lot to do. Uh, the Bipartisan Commission on Biodefense is certainly a venue to be a voice to pull all these entities together. Uh, the importance of the role in law enforcement safeguarding intellectual property was certainly highlighted very well by my colleague. And uh, we need to take a good look at the convergence of cyber and biological sciences, the challenge uh, that these areas pose to public safety, and the recommended solutions with regard to cybersecurity, as well as coordination with the private sector. This is a model that already exists in federal government, and we need to just provide that level of exposure and attention for those entities to work together. As your bipartisan report makes reference to, the vulnerability of intellectual property and the national global bioeconomy is a concept that is critical to understand and even more important to address. There is an immediate need to adopt robust cybersecurity policies for safeguarding the intellectual property and the economic activity generated by research and innovation in the biological sciences. Based on my experience in law enforcement over 32 years and working uh, very closely with the men and women of U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement and Homeland Security Investigations and those who work at the National Intellectual Property Rights Coordination Center, there are three things that we really need to uh, initiate from a law enforcement perspective. 
strategic coordination among law enforcement and intelligence communities, collaboration with the private sector, coordination of the most secure methods of storing intellectual property, and sharing of that information between law enforcement, the intelligence community, and the private sector. Within the government, this must be a priority within the executive branch, and it's got to be all hands on deck. Law enforcement and the intelligence community must find a way to share the information and to discuss these threats. But that isn't the only thing that we have to do. We have to see that the private sector is uniquely engaged, and the National IPR Center is certainly a, a venue by which has a structure that has worked in the world of counterfeiting for many trademark holders. And your, as your report indicates, the National IPR Coordination Center could certainly aid in that endeavor. Law enforcement must initiate communication with the public like it's done in other areas, such as human trafficking. Uh, this communication needs to include a concerted effort to enhance the education, prevention, and protection from cybersecurity threats. Again, it kind of goes back to the idea that this has to be a whole-of-government perspective at all levels of government. This would provide a natural foundation in the protection of critical infrastructure and ultimately protection of intellectual property. I cannot emphasize enough that this process must be a commitment at the highest level of government and include a heightened level of awareness, action, both proactive and reactive in many areas. The National Intellectual Property Rights Coordination Center leads this effort to fight global intellectual property theft, enforcement of international trade laws that affect both national security and the economy. They also conduct counterproliferation investigations, of which this is a significant challenge. There are more than 25 domestic and international partners that work these investigations and issues, as well as working with the Export Enforcement Coordination Center, which works on weapons of mass destruction with the FBI and its task force environment that is fully funded by Congress. And these agencies have worked well together as well in counterproliferation investigations and those devices that come in and out of our country. This model has proven very successful in addressing the needs of both the international law enforcement community as well as the private sector. It's provided a, a venue by which the private sector can come with their concerns, exchange ideas, and provide information. Over the years, uh, this has resulted in a, a stellar public and private partnership that we have been successful in defending the world economy and enhancing public safety. So in the realm of cyber biosecurity, this is much like terrorism. We have to put all of our eggs in one basket, focus, leverage those resources that we have, and execute uh, a great program to protect our nation. Uh, once again, thank you for the opportunity to address you today, and I look forward to answering any questions that you may have on this topic.
There certainly is a difference, sir. Uh, from my perspective, uh, there are a lot of very relevant personal relationships that enhance that communication and sharing of information. Uh, attempts are being made to institutionalize it, but we're not quite there yet. We are much further along than we were after 9-11, but we have a ways to go. So um, it's it's both. Um, it is be, has become better institutionalized. Um, it, there is dependency on, on individuals, but uh, there is another challenge, and I, and I sort of touched on it, that if you're talking about traditional cybersecurity, if you're talking about traditional biological weapons concerns, like as in counterproliferation, um, if you're looking at uh, espionage, uh, within those mission sets, there are those collaborations and, and the lines of communication. But now if you're talking about in the area of convergence, where there is going to be a cyber nexus that has ties to economic espionage, that have ties to nation state um, capability, capacity building, then how do you get everybody working off the same sheet of music? Um, so that's why uh, what's being done right now uh, in looking at, there actually is this consensus study that was mentioned before about the National Academies of Sciences looking at the bioeconomy, and that at the White House there is this joint NSC OSTP effort at that the, the whole theme is safeguarding the bioeconomy to try to marshal the interagencies to start looking at it across the board in a little more holistic fashion. So at, at a, from a FBI programmatic level, we are definitely pushing out that awareness raising. We are also engaging with our other federal partners, so Department of Homeland Security and leveraging the different ISACs as well, so the health sector, the energy sector. But um, it was already mentioned that um, we can't do it fast enough um, because this is evolving so rapidly um, that there are these areas, areas of convergence. Um, it goes to, it was just case in point. Um, the Biological Weapons Convention was, was discussed incredibly relevant for somebody who's working, say, in a high containment laboratory. But in the age of convergence, how do you get the same concerns about security to a high school or college student who's a programmer? But the software tool that they're going to be developing absolutely is going to contribute to the bioeconomy, but they're never going to have their hands in a wet lab working with pathogens yet. Or the same thing, how do you protect the biohacker DIY bio community? Because that, those are some really important areas of, of innovation but they may get disenfranchised or marginalized because somebody else has cornered the market in, in, in a global fashion. So it's, I completely agree with you, we are doing our best efforts to raise that level of awareness, not only in private sector, but also within academia. Because if you talk to academia about protecting IP, that's an anathema to them, especially if they're doing basic research. Because they're not at that end of the pipeline. They're, they're somewhere in the middle or at the very early stages. But if you talk about it, this way, that it's not just losing out on the research platform, but the students that are going through, that you're training and educating right now, if we don't do something about this today, what are their job prospects by the time they've graduated if it's all elsewhere? And if you talk about it in that context, I think that would resonate more. 
potentially. That is not clear. The fact is, is that that we need to start teasing that out. So um, this goes to the fact that uh, supply chain risk management, for example, is a, is a key theme here because if you're talking about uh, telecom or missile technology or um, aerospace, we've done a pretty good job in in running down that supply chain and looking for uh, for vulnerabilities. But if you flip it over to the bio side. We're not quite there yet, so that's why we have those potential vulnerabilities for the, the Huawei partnering with Philips Healthcare, which is European actually, and and then Philips then turning around and partnering with the DoD. There, those are just ones that we know of, um, and can't we do, we're not in a position at least right now to start looking at things a little more holistically. Because uh, remember what I said before, a lot of these foreign entities they meet all of our existing criteria. They meet uh, HIPAA certification. They meet NIST cybersecurity guidelines. They, they, they can actually compete, put in bids for federal contracts. So that just shows you that our ability to do that, asking those second, third order security questions, we're not up to snuff yet when it comes to bio. Well, that remains to be seen. So, so far be it for me to, to um, point out DoD, but, but remember at the same time that it's, if you're a, a contract officer and you have um, a request for proposals and, and these outside entities are putting in their bids, you are going down and doing your due diligence. Is this company meeting our existing regulatory requirements? Check if they are. Uh, 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 check and the, and at the end of the day, they're also offering the lowest price point, and you want to do your due diligence of being responsible to taxpayer taxpayer funding. Check. Then, but again, as I said, we're just not in the position to go. How do you take that process to incorporate the other bio vulnerabilities because that's just not on their radar right now. Well, I, I, I thank you both as well, and Ed, it's always good to have you back. Uh, Peter, our panel, uh, you may, may know that uh, our panel recommended that ICE direct the Intellectual Property Center and the ICE Cyber Crime Center to specifically address cyber threats uh, and the vulnerabilities of pathogen data and prevent intellectual property loss associated with it. To what extent, from your experience, do you think ICE has the resources to do exactly that? Thank you for the question. Uh, the structure is set up, but there is not enough focus on this particular cyber biosecurity related 
problem. Uh, I think that uh, in the future, uh, leveraging that structure that already exists to provide that level of protection, communication, and education with the private sector, uh, we could see, see some significant results. The uh, Intellectual Property Rights Center currently has a mechanism in place and connectivity to the private sector uh, that is really second to none in law enforcement, federal law enforcement, uh, and the partners that we have there are, are critical to us fighting counterfeiting and intellectual property theft. And the Department of Homeland Security has a multitude of resources. You know, that's kind of why I was saying we have to put all the tools that we have as a government on the table, and everyone needs to know what everyone else has and does to really meet this problem head on, just like we have done with terrorism. Uh, all the different agencies within the Department of Homeland Security have unique skill sets and outreach capabilities to the private sector and local governments to uh, make sure that we can address this issue. And, and it's uh, as I did the reading about you know of your report, uh, it certainly occurred to me that this is a larger problem than uh, has ever been discussed before, and it needs to be highlighted. It needs to be there needs to be an outline and an attack strategy, so to speak, to uh, meet this head on. And actually, you know, once you get to the enforcement side and the securities prevention, and also it's proactive and reactive. It's prevention and it's what happened after, you know, cleanup. Mm -hmm. So we have to address all those different areas. And it's uh, critical that we do so in a hurry based on the information that was shared by my colleague. That's a very, very good answer. I, I, another one of the recommendations, as you know, is that we do a better job of coordinating all of the agencies uh, involved in some way with regard to to security, biosecurity in particular, and that we delegate a lead agency. Um, our view has always been that the vice president should head up the coordinated effort, but this administration has chosen for understandable reasons to largely delegate that responsibility to ASPR and, uh, and to coordinate around ASPR and to give them sort of the lead, lead uh, role, but, but nonetheless expect full cooperation from all other agencies. I realize you're no longer there, but to what extent do you believe that coordination is now underway? And what would be the attitude of a sort of a typical ICE um, official with regard to that kind of a mandate? The typical response by an ICE official would have to result in, are we going to have the funding to execute this problem? Are we going to have the resources to provide the employees with education, with equipment, with the structure to foster that communication? Sometimes having someone at the highest level of the executive branch is a help. Sometimes it's a hindrance. Sometimes it has uh, other effects that bring us together and kind of like the HIDA program. I mean, there were, it's a good example of having a drug czar and a person at ONDCP who kind of herds the cats, brings everyone together on one topic, sharing information, having different HIDAs around the country reaching into the communities and state and local law enforcement. The same thing has to be done here. 
And uh, as far as ICE, you know, they're competing priorities. There are 400 criminal statutes that ICE is empowered to enforce, both that pertain to immigration as well as all the customs enforcement violations that are out there. And this falls in that space, that is traditional uh, customs service-related work. So there just has to be a priority placed on it. And uh, as you're well aware, Senator, uh, government employees, once they're given direction, especially in law enforcement, they're going to forge ahead and execute the mission. And they're not going to ask too many questions. But as long as they have the resources to do it, there will definitely be no complaints. Thank you. You're welcome. Ed, I, I, uh, you, you really lay out a very uh, troubling scenario with regard to the current circumstances uh, in biosecurity, especially as it relates to China. I was, I was, I spent a lot of time in the healthcare space, and I wasn't aware that. Did you? Did I think I understood you to say that China now manufactures eighty percent of all generic drugs? Is that? Did I hear you say that? That's remarkable. I was not aware of that. We have all these rules against importation, but you're telling us that China, of all countries, is exporting 80% of our generic drug market. Yes, sir. Wow. Um, what I didn't hear, and you may have alluded to it, and I just wasn't paying as close attention, obviously, CFIUS in and of itself is totally inadequate to address the challenges you just so graphically laid out. How do we, what specific actions are necessary to strengthen CFIUS? But beyond that, and especially given new capacities with AI, what are the most effective inoculative efforts that we should consider to address that remarkable scenario that you just described to us? So for clarification, China does have a very significant portion of the generic pharmaceutical market. India has a, a, a huge contribution too, but I think even China's giving them a run for their money. And potentially because of uh, India's own healthcare needs, they may be looking to China for, for to uh, tap into that market. So that might displace us. Something to think about. Um, CFIUS absolutely is an important tool um, to, to address the bioeconomy issue. But you're absolutely right. Um, by the time it gets to CFIUS, it might be already too late. Um, it's, it's in a, it, by its very nature, it's almost it's reactive in being able to look at uh, pending or transactions or transactions that have already occurred. So this is really a call out to how do we use this, um, this threat as a whole of government issue, as was mentioned before, that it does mean we have to sort of retask um, looking at rather than being in a reactive posture, so uh, criminal theft of IP, but it's now looking at ranging from how we uh, grant contracts and, and awards for uh, research funding all the way down to even basic consumer education. Um, if the, I think it really is upon, incumbent upon the government that if in the future that this becomes a medical device, Right, if you're able to capture medical data, house it, store it, and and you know in the in the future of 5G and the Internet of Things, this then also becomes a diagnostic tool. At the end, then the focus right now is predominantly on privacy um, and uh, data transmission security. But think about the underlying telecommunication provider. Um, then that defeats all of that, all the concerns right there. So it's it's a big ask. 
Um, but again, I really applaud uh, the commission uh, for giving us the forum to be able to lay out. This is where we're trending. Um, so it's, I'm a huge fan and, and I respect Dr. Cadillac immensely on ASPR. Um, the national biodefense strategy is significant, but it is just a step. It's a step in the right direction, but in the grand scheme of things from a bioeconomy standpoint, we have, there's much more to do. Well, if I could just drill down a little bit. I, I, look at, uh, I, I look at what the Trump administration has attempted to do with China on the whole range of trade issues. Um, the whole tariff matter has been very complicated, controversial, and, and uh, uh, certainly not without uh, consequences for the United States. Um, I give them credit for attempting to confront China more directly than predecessors have. I, I think the mistake perhaps they made was not making it more multinational, but, but just the experience that we've had now in the last year in confronting China on intellectual property, among other things, and the little success we've had in spite of fairly consequential actions in, re in retaliation or in response to their reticence to change their practices. What leverage, what, what options do we have available to us that we haven't explored to confront China more effectively on the whole issue of IP? So, expanding on, on, on your question, uh, I'll, I'm going to take a page from uh, the President's national security strategy, that it can't just be about being protectionist. There absolutely has to be a part of promote. Um, and there's a reason why the U.S. for decades, as was mentioned by Dr. Lee earlier today, that we've been the innovator, innovation lead. And what are we doing to maintain that lead? So, you c so as bio is completely open in a lot of ways, um, it is global. There's only so much you can do on the protection, uh, protection side. It still needs to be done. Uh, but then if we're not doing protection and we're not making the right moves in the promote, where, where does that leave us? We're not doing either. Um, and that, that puts us in a really untenable position. Uh, I also want to put out that. But before you get out, what, what do you mean by promote in this case? What, what can we do to promote that would protect our IP? So not even just protect IP, but, but be in a position to be able to um, develop even more IP, um, increase the chances for developing future IP. So that goes into looking at our, our priorities and, and um, uh, uh, funding of research and development uh, aspects, looking at what, how we're building out our economic infrastructure for small businesses to succeed, um, even looking at what's the pathway for if you're a garage biohacker translating from what you, from inception of an idea to a final product, what what are we doing to be able to capitalize on that? Um, I'm not quite sure if enough of that kind of discussion is happening. Uh, and the challenge I also want to put to you is that rather than just also focus on what we're doing here, we also need to have an idea of what's happening over there. What I mean by that is that in um, July 1 of this year, China just implemented new regulations that puts even more controls on how biological data and samples are shared. Um, and to a business potential partner um, here in the US or a scientist and a university collaborating with China, they need to have a be aware, buyer beware, because with these new regulations, you have to have a Chinese hosting entity in that partnership. 
and in that and in that collaboration or partnership or contract, if any data or even patents are generated, that Chinese entity has first rights for that. So I don't even think we fully appreciate what they've implemented on their end. They've also implemented a national cybersecurity privacy law. So the government controls data inflow and outflow. And where does that mean for us that if we are a free-flowing open society, it doesn't help if we're the only ones being open? Um, and and what are we doing in a side-by-side -side comparison? If we're an open um, society without any security measures in place, what does that mean when you're giving it to an authoritarian regime? And what does what, what the playing field look like when they're putting all the measures to make it advantageous for them? Um, so it, I'm expanding on your initial question that, yes, there are, there's an emphasis on IP, but it has to be broader than that. Thank you. Um, the 80% thing, which I think you were sort of starting to clarify a little bit. So as I understand it, um, the U.S. imports 80% of all the active ingredients in our medicines across the board. Yeah. Uh, and 90% of our prescriptions are now generic. Uh, and and uh, China, we, those active ingredients are primarily imported from right. China. Right. Thank you for the clarification. Yeah. Um, you're close. <laughs> um, and I just Googled it, so I'm not that smart either. Um, um, uh, on CFIUS, uh, I, I think it's interesting because when CFIUS tightened the rules and said that instead of just looking at mergers and acquisitions and takeovers, they were going to look at investment and non-majority investments into biotechnology companies, most of my member companies didn't say, oh, thank you from protecting us, for protecting us from other companies that might uh, make such a be you know have investors in China, who, uh, information might then end up in China and then competing unfairly with us. Most of them said, "Rats, it's going to be really hard now for me to get the investment from China that I want, and maybe I need um, because they are, they are aggressively um, uh, investing." And I don't you know obviously most of it's not um, for strategic. Um, purely strategic uh, reasons, but for economic reasons, they're just business people doing business. So the question is, do you, do you feel like CFIUS has, has it right yet? I mean, do you know, do you feel like we've struck, found the right balance in order to sort out when is Chinese investment in, or foreign investment in U.S. companies, uh, biotechnology companies, uh, uh, a spur to biotech innovation in the U.S. because we have uh, more uh, uh, ac access to capital as to when is it, you know, the kind of um, uh, constitute the kind of threats that you laid out. Sure. No, I, I appreciate that. Um, I think it's still early on. Um, what I appreciate about uh, the, the legislation that reinforced CFIUS is that it does put uh, the bioeconomy in a more prominent position. This goes back to an early question about the, the government um, partnership with the private sector in that what are we doing to educate the private sector that the short-term consequences of the pain is in the best interest for their long-term survival? So in the, in, you might get short-term investment, short-term cost savings, but at what price in the long run? And I think we need to be able to provide that education um, as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. And at least what it does is it opens that conversation. So um, ideally, this perspective through organizations potentially like BIO, we can get that messaging out that there is, there is a reason for this. And if I may get on my soapbox a little bit. Uh, Good, because I'm going to get on mine in a minute. Yeah. <laughs> there, so 
there's a lot of talk about the, the regulations um, and about uh, the, the, how sometimes it, it's looked at as an, as an obstacle. But bear in mind that the regulations exist for a reason, whether it be for human subject protection, animal welfare, care and use. Um, but I flip that around that if we don't do something about it today, in the, in the interest of, you know, I want that investment, I want that seed funding, or, or I want to be, you know, have access to that potential market, then the question then becomes is, so what if someone like China um, cures cancer or is the first day does, does gene editing and, and rolls it out? Um, what I want to put out there is that the part of the U.S. being the first is that we've been able to inculcate our values, our ethics, right? The being honoring um, patient privacy, human subject protection, those are incorporated into that. Um, it's and I'm getting a little high high minded here, but it's the very aspects of the Constitution that that you know, as as government uh, federal law enforcement officers, we take an oath to to protect. But then, if we cede that high ground to someone like an authoritarian regime to then roll out their products first, they dictate the terms. They control the conversation. And so where do the, the values in the long run look like in that point? So I think that's an aspect that I don't think we really talk about all that much. But I, I think that's incredibly important, especially if you're talking about it as, from the perspective of as a consumer and especially as a patient. Yeah, I agree. And that's not too high-minded at all. Uh, we did have someone from CFIUS speak briefly to one of my board meetings, but it was, it was too brief, and so we probably need to take your advice and, and do a more um, uh, comprehensive um, communication. Um, and I said I was going to get in my soapbox. Um, you talked about the White House's uh, efforts on uh, what, you know, what can we do to advance the, uh, the U.S. bioeconomy. I was invited to come to the initial meeting, but I was too busy trying to prevent all of the ways that the White House is just trying to destroy biotechnology, the bioeconomy. Um, you know, the, the, um, the fact of the matter is drug prices have gone up in single digits for the last five years. What's really exploded is uh, high deductible health policies. Half the people in the country have them now. And so that's what they're, that's what they're experiencing. They're experiencing the high out-of-pocket costs. And if we go to start using, if we, if we go down to um, European prices, which they're proposing, um, where they can demand 80% discounts from our companies. We know there would be no margin left to attract investment into the bioeconomy whatsoever. So nothing to do with what we're doing here, but that's my soapbox. Um, Peter, um, when you talk about resources um, that are needed, and particularly for things like um, counter the, to counter the proliferation of biological drug, uh, biological weapons, um, and the resources available. Do you know to what extent, um, if any, the issues on, with the border and immigration have? I don't know how fungible the ICE budget is, but is it? Are we are we seeing funds moved from programs like that uh, into the, the the immigration issue? When I was there, when I was there. Uh, a little over a year ago, uh, the funding was very specific for these programs that we're talking about. The National IPR Center received special funding. The Export Enforcement Coordination Center received directed funding. So those funds were not uh, fungible or utilized for, uh, let's say, the immigration mission at the southwest border. That was when you were there. Yes. <laughs> Do you have any insight from your friends who still are there? I know that there are challenges, and they've they've seen a uh, 
limited amount of funding for those areas. Uh, and they've seen more funding for the immigration enforcement side of things. Mm -hmm. Is that coming out of the, the proposed budget, uh, congressional appropriations, or moving money from point A to point B? No, that's coming out of the proposed budget. Uh, the, the you, know, the, you know, the focus is uh, the southwest border and the wall and, and things of that nature. And as you're well aware, there are two sides of ICE, the Homeland Security Investigation side, of which we're talking about all the work that they do here, uh, and also the enforcement and removal side. And that is the purely detention and removal of uh, illegal aliens and the most egregious aliens, uh, illegal aliens that are yeah. incarcerated here in the country. So that's where a lot of the focus has been. Thank you. We're running out of time, so I'll yield back. Thank you. Thank you, Jim Kent. Thank you, and thanks for your, um, your remarks. Um, so I'll get on my, my little soapbox. It's a lower soapbox <laughs> than Jim's, but um, it's on information sharing. And, and Mr. Edge, I want to start with you. Um, so you, you talked about the investigative side and the coordination between you all and the intelligence community um, dealing with you know, bioweapons, the, the threat of uh, bioweapons, especially coming into the country. Um, how is that? What's the state of that information sharing working with the intelligence community? Once again, always a challenge because uh, of sensitive sources and methods and that kind of thing. But in terms of you all being the ones who will be the eyes and the ears to, you know, uh, at the points of entry, et cetera, and then within the country, um, are you getting the the intel that you need that says this is the kind of bioweapons that might be coming in? This is, you know, the route that it might be taking. This kind of thing. Based on my experience, both in the field and at headquarters, uh, working at headquarters the last seven years of my career, uh, we had very good relationships with the intelligence community. We actually had uh, agents assigned to various divisions at different intelligence agencies. Uh, we also had uh, agents assigned to various COCOMs. Every single COCOM in the world we had special agents assigned to. So there was real-time information being shared on a multitude of investigative efforts. So I, I would say that the information was a marked improvement mm -hmm. from, uh, like I said, pre-9-11, when there was really limited uh, communication. Mm -hmm. Okay, good. Hey, just a general question. You've been with the WNB directorate since the beginning? Almost. When, when was it stood up? It was stood up in 2006, and I joined in 2008. Okay, all right. Um, so what's your, what's your report card and how the director's doing? <laughs> Oh, it's it's a legitimate question. I mean, it's tough to stand up a new, a whole new division, and um, it's a, it's a bit of a hybrid, and it's not sort of necessarily. It doesn't really track sort of what the the, the structure that the bureau had used in the past, and um, always been a challenge, I think, in a, in a way. And so, you're obviously one of the main kind of um, the faces of the of the directorate. Uh, but what do you? How do you think it's it's going? Just generally in terms of its its effectiveness but also its integration within the bureau and then within the law enforcement intelligence communities in general um, so I appreciate the question I actually it's it, uh, it's almost a, a, a leading question for me so I appreciate it mm -hmm. uh, no the I'll cross-examine you afterwards it, no, post 9-11 post 9-11 and post Amerithrax uh, the, mm -hmm. the 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 fact that there's a WMD directorate is incredibly significant um, and although you know you do see me quite a bit, quite honestly, the, the cornerstone of our programs, as was mentioned earlier, is our WD coordinators. Mm -hmm. So the fact that there's at least one in each of our 56 field offices, um, the fact of the matter is that that if there ever was, knock on wood, uh, um, a suspicious outbreak or something like along those lines, 
the directorate has established formal partnerships with the CDC and that there is absolute um, information sharing between law enforcement and public health to rapidly determine if there's an unusual event, is it just a freak act of nature naturally occurring or are there any aspects of an intentional release of some kind? So uh, though that is still well in place, um, that's exercised regularly, uh, those relationships. Uh, the WD coordinators are actively going out and seeking contacts with universities, um, members of the private sector, and then also reaching across to um, their cyber units, the counterintelligence units, so making sure that whether it's a chem, bio, rad, nuke modality, that that aspect is incorporated into their operations as well. Um, there's also an expansion going on now too that um, they're uh, looking at um, partnering with the NRHC, they always have been. We've partnered with Interpol um, and uh, uh, are also integrated with the State Department and with the Defense Department in integrating with their uh, threat reduction mission as well to help our, our foreign partners because if you think about it, if we're able to prevent um, something going sideways elsewhere, it increases the standoff distance from the homeland as well, too. So th those activities are still ongoing and um, still going strong. Um, there's there's no short of, of work, that's for sure. Okay, so where's the room for improvement? Room for improvement? Um, actually, th everything that I just mentioned uh, in my, in my uh, initial uh, testimony applies even for the Bureau, that for bio in particular, bio is not like chem, it's not like RADNUC, um, it is ever-evolving, and it's also a challenge for even an agency like Bureau to stay up-to-date, mm -hmm. making sure that we're well-integrated within, the, within the, the agency and then also with our, our federal partners because uh, the, the fact that it is ever-evolving and ever-converging and covering a multitude of different disciplines, it's one thing that if you have a WD coordinator go out to a, a suspicious activity reporting for a, a, like a biosafety level three high containment laboratory. That's very specific, we get that, um, um, if it's, especially if it's housing select agents. But then now if you're talking about a cyber intrusion that potentially impacts medical records, then mm -hmm. yes, our cyber investigations will ensue, but now we have to overlay it with, they'll figure out the who and the how, but you need that bio piece to, to figure out the why. And, and get better insight into the intent. And that's just one small piece of it. But uh, as I just articulated, this, this impacts everything. It impacts cybersecurity, international trade, espionage, insider threat issues. And um, if anything, bio helps in kind of coalescing everything. Again, uh, the, the convergence aspect of it. But you have no idea how spot on you are about the, the multiplicative aspect of the threat now. Okay, good. All right, thanks very much for that. Okay. Could we ask our panel if they have any questions? So here we are uh, 18 years after 9-11 and you guys are still talking about silos. Do you, what, do you think it's a fixable problem or do you think it's fundamentally something that can't be fixed? Well, uh, I think since right after 9-11 we have made significant strides in that level of communication. I mean, the advent of uh, various task forces in all these different areas, whether it's intellectual property right, you know, combating trade, travel, and commerce uh, related crimes, or whether it's uh, you know, cyber bio, uh, cyber security. Cyber security uh, applies to every type of crime that there is. So uh, there's communication among the agencies, both at the local level and also at the state level, like there really hasn't been before. Uh, it's certainly in more disciplines, criminal disciplines that uh, we, typically enforced.
So I would say that we have made progress. Uh, do we need to make more progress? Absolutely. And that has got to be a whole of government approach with assistance from organizations like this, as well as uh, the folks on both ends of Pennsylvania Avenue. So you're basically saying it's a continuum. How far do you think we've gotten along the continuum? You know, that's a, that's a tough question. <laughs> that's a Fair tough enough. question. I, I would venture to say we are at least 40 to 50% along the way. We have a lot more to do. It's got to become institutionalized. Uh, in regard to the awareness um, that you were talking about, uh, are we making uh, progress in terms of the realization on cyber security companies to mobilize a declaration uh, that would focus attention uh, of the public in general. That is to say, the role of the public in addition to the role of government. Thank you very much for your question. And again, that kind of goes back to my initial comments about uh, leveraging every sector of all that is our society. Uh, the academia, the private sector, uh, the public sector, both social services as well as law enforcement, everyone has to have an enhanced awareness of this issue and problem, much like they do when you say terrorism, people understand, they have an idea. But when you talk about cyber bio and cybersecurity, it's kind of a little bit more foggy and, and needless to say, and people are still trying to figure out exactly what that means. And that's where the education piece comes into play. And I can speak for the National Intellectual Property Rights Coordination Center. You know, there are certain center, academic centers of excellence that have really helped get that message out. Uh, Michigan State has an unbelievable uh, intellectual property rights program, and we worked very closely with them when I was there. But th it's things like that that we have to step out of our comfort zones of uh, enforcement and reach out to other industries and have these discussions. and share the, the experiences that we all have. Well, we thank both of you, Peter and Ed, for your statement, for your insight, for the extraordinary leadership you continue to provide. We're grateful for that. And my uh, suspicion is we may be asking you to come back yet again at some point to further enlighten us and give us guidance. But uh, yes, <laughs> but thank you both for coming. Thank you. Thank you for having us. This concludes the day. I don't know about uh, each of you, but I found it extraordinarily informative and very, very helpful. I want to especially thank Asha and the, and the staff for all of the good work they've done in making this, uh, making this uh, experience possible. It's been a great day. We appreciate all of you. Some of you have been here all day. Most of you, all of you have probably been here all day, and we're grateful for your participation as well. We'll be uh, back. Uh, if not in this room, in another room shortly. And uh, thank you all very much. <laughs>